With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations and tackle uh, important broadband issues getting this technology everywhere that it needs to be. <clears throat> uh, today is day two at the Fiber to the Home conference here in Dallas. Uh, it's been a very interesting uh, couple of days of interesting sessions, uh, lots of interesting vendors, um, just a lot of stuff going on in this whole broadband arena. For those of you who've listened to uh, my show quite a bit, know that I spend a fair amount of time talking about broadband and economic development. In fact, that's how we kicked off the show uh, yesterday. Today, we're going to talk about uh, economic development and probably give you some information that you might not have known about uh, uh, in this broadband arena. Uh, Chattanooga is very well known for its gigabit network. But I think what people or a lot of people don't know is that the network actually started out not with the mission of delivering a gigabit to people's homes. It started out as an exercise in economic development where the uh, the idea being that the um, utility, EPB, would upgrade its uh, smart grid system as a way to better manage uh, their electricity services. And as a result, there would be a number of significant economic benefits and probably a lot more than, than folks realize. Today, I am very happy to have as uh, our guest um, Katie Espeset, who is the Vice President of EPB Fiber Optics. And we're going to talk about those, those early days of, um, of fiber in Chattanooga, but more importantly, we're going to really focus on the economic impact that it's had and how other communities can replicate some of these successes. Katie, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Greg. Appreciate you inviting us to join you. Thank you. And so let's get into the the history. So once upon a time, there was this idea to um, bring fiber to Chattanooga. So I'm going to let you take it because obviously right, so. this is your story and I should not steal your thunder. I'll, I'll, I'll back. <laughs> I don't know if there's any thunder to steal, but um, basically EPB is a municipally owned electric power distributor, um, and, and we've been in business for about 70 years. In quarter of our business, our original mission um, was really to become an economic development tool for the community by electrifying the, the valley. Um, that mission remains... Uh, the same today for us, it's economic development and uh, quality of life. And so uh, providing more reliable electric power um, just syncs with that mission perfectly. So about 10 years ago, we started looking at ways to modernize our, our, our grid. Uh, we started looking at, at uh, studies that were being done by independent organizations. One was the Electric Power Research Institute, TVA had a study, UC Berkeley published a study. Um, and, and 
pretty much the results were, or the outlook was pretty similar. Um, electric outages or power outages um, cost the country as a whole about $80 billion a year. And those losses are non-revenue. It's actually in lost productivity, lost wages, manufacturing locations that have to shut down, and things like that. If you take those same statistics, and you compare those to an area of the south of Chattanooga, um, you'll come to the conclusion that, that power outages to a community the size or similar in Chattanooga about a, a cost the community about $100 million a year. Um, I go back to our mission for economic development. Well, what do companies look for when they are either going to expand or to locate a new facility? It's access to reliable power, and in modern day, it's access to these what we call next generation broadband services. So we started um, going down this path of fiber by saying, how do we modernize our electric system, and how do we reduce the duration of power outages? You know, um, the electric power grid in the country today is pretty much the same all over, and it's not a reflection. It doesn't mean we're behind. But if you bought a car, let's say in 1930, um, and you didn't, and you maintained it, you took perfectly good care of it, it'd probably still run today. And that's sort of the way the electric power grid is. But if you look at a car today, and you look at the console, and you, you've got all sorts of gauges that tell you when you need to add air to your tires or change your oil and that sort of thing, it's all about a communication system. So we took that same philosophy and applied it to our electric grid and that's really what drove us to the fiber network because you've got to have uh, the power that basically limitless power of fiber in order to talk to that many devices all around your system. Mm -hmm. Now my <clears throat> understanding of smart grid before I started uh, talking to folks in Chattanooga really was about smart meter reading. And in 1999, when I was working for a company that was the precursor to municipal Wi-Fi, one of the divisions of that company sold technology that would allow a truck to ride through communities, and it would read people's meters and take all that data and come back to the office and drop it into a system. And everybody thought, oh, gee, that's pretty, that's pretty neat. But what has been, you know, short, the condensed, history of, you know, how we've gotten from that to where uh, smart, is, smart Grid is now. And I bring this question up because I remember when I first started talking about Chattanooga, the first thing someone said was, well, if all you're doing is meter reading and you're just pulling data from people's meters, why do you need a fiber network for that? You probably don't need a fiber network if that's all you're going to do with it. It's okay. just read meters. Um, we certainly do use our... Um, a fiber network to read meters, and we estimate that'll save us between two and three million dollars a year operationally by mm -hmm. using the fiber optic network to read meters. But that is really just the tip of the iceberg. While we will, by the end of this year, have 170,000 smart meters all across our system, that's only a small part. We're pulling back data from those meters in 15-minute increments. We're working with Bell Labs to create a huge smart grid management system to bring back all that intelligence and ultimately give our customers better ways to control their energy. Mm -hmm. um, but again, that's just a small part of it. More importantly, our, our largest savings to the community come where we can actually cut the duration of power outages. When we first started making projections 
um, about the impact our smart grid network would have on the community. We estimated it would save about 40% or cut the duration of an outage by 40%. If you apply that to the $100 million, that gives you $40 million a year in lost productivity, mm -hmm. lost wages to the community. And while our smart grid is not complete, it's almost complete, it will be complete by the end of this year, we have installed about 1,200 uh, SNC smart interrupter switches mm -hmm. that put, that constantly uh, remain in touch with us, and we're able to pinpoint outages and reroute power in the event of any sort of uh, weather or any sort of outage situation. Um, it's already working. Uh, we had a gust storm that blew through Chattanooga on July 5th. We lost power to over 80,000 customers. 42,000 of those customers didn't even realize they had an outage. For less than two to five seconds, over half of those folks' power was restored. Mm -hmm. So what we tell our folks, and it's very true, when the lights flicker, that means the smart grid is working. <laughs> okay. So if you can reduce power outages or reduce the duration by half, you've returned $50 million of savings to the community. <laughs> A couple other things it does for you. I mentioned it, it does give us some operational efficiencies in reading meters. You know, people also steal power. I had no earthly idea until I went to work for an electric you power steal district. It. They steal it. They do all sorts of things Wow. Uh, to steal power. Power, and, you know, all of us pay for that. Right, right. As an electric distributor, we still have to pay for that power, so that impacts all of us. And uh, those numbers have been estimated anywhere from 5 to $10 million mm -hmm. impact on us. Well, with the um, smart grid, with those literally thousands of points of communication on the network, we know when a meter has been tampered with, mm -hmm. and we can stop the theft. So right away, you're looking at five to $10,000 in real savings to the utility, which translates to real savings to our uh, customers. Mm -hmm. So in essence, the impact here is on multiple layers. There is there are savings to EPB as a utility, but as a public utility, then this circulates, in essence, back to the public in the sense that it's, it's, it's saving money and it ultimately saves the public money. Um, but then there's also the usage that is increased by uh, both businesses and residential because the power is not down, uh, or if it is down, it's not down as much. That's correct. Uh -huh. And so subsequently you have... Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> do people realize... I mean, you've, you've talked to a lot, of, a lot of folks, but do people in other communities realize that, uh, or, or how much this impact is on businesses? Because right? some of you might look at it and say, well, you know, a couple of minutes in my home or even a day, I mean, that's significant if I'm sure. a person, but there, I think there's a business impact that goes way beyond there, there is There is a huge business impact, and you're right. I suspect that it's not, it's certainly not um, widely known among residential uh, customers that there is this sort of cost to businesses. Um, if you look at uh, independent sources like Site Selector Magazine and those sort who actually go out and rank communities and you look at what factors play into when they recommend a site, you'll see access to first reliable power and then secondly, um, or certainly near on that list is access to these um, second generation large bandwidth broadband services as being very high on the list before these services will recommend that a company locate or even expand there. Mm -hmm. So I do think that 
people who are running the businesses and certainly people who are making recommendations recognize the worth of access to, to good power. Mm -hmm. So in a, uh, in a business environment, let's start maybe to a little tick list of all the ways in which improved energy management has uh, has an economic impact so there's one if i've got a if i'm out for a day that's a huge impact right on on the business community mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if you have a sense of it at the down well, to that level but well if you picture just a manufacturing plant mm -hmm. who for some reason doesn't necessarily know that their power is out for the weekend they come in on a monday morning and the power is out and, you know, there's always startup time mm -hmm. uh, on the large machinery. So they, they're already behind maybe a full shift okay. by the time they come in. If, A, they didn't know, or, B, we didn't know mm -hmm. prior to, to the smart grid. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that you probably wouldn't just think of off the top of your head that you're not just talking about losing 15 minutes worth of work. You may be losing an entire shift, an entire day, and that ties directly back to monetary value and product. Mm -hmm. And then the, the volume, the dollar volume, is incrementally greater as the size of the community and is greater. It I? is. It is. The $100 million that I referenced was really for a community the size of Chattanooga. And, and just to kind of put that in perspective, um, Chattanooga is home to about 500000 Mm -hmm. um, EPV is the electric power distributor. Actually, we serve about 170,000 homes and businesses mm -hmm. in our area. So that that's how we brought the $80 billion down to a community our size okay. based on those numbers. Then, so, this, so there, there's that one element. Then you have um, lost productivity. But then also, if you are able to manage the electricity use and you can manage it down to the customer level, isn't there also opportunities to make the business customer's use of electricity more uh, more effective that will also have an impact on that business? Certainly. Um, uh, there are some businesses who are, are on our time of use rates. We'll, we will eventually be rolling time of use rates out to our residential customers as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we pay our power bill based on our peak usage. So it's good for all of us if we can take those peaks, basically, and shave them and spread our usage out where we don't have the huge spikes in the, the large valleys of when um, electricity is not being used. It saves us all money. It, it um, You know, the cost of power is going up, and, and we can't promise that this will bring the price of power down, um, but it will help us all use it more efficiently and, in the long run, hold down the cost of energy for our community. Mm -hmm. Now, are there other are there other aspects of this uh, utility management that has then an impact on the on the business community, either in terms of allowing them to operate more efficiently or save additional money? Uh, well, uh, we we have a large commercial client who who actually sits very near one of those twelve hundred interrupter switches mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier, and they called because they had some machinery that was actually tripping and going offline, which was translating into downtown downtime for their manufacturing facility. Mm -hmm. And in the past, what we would have had to have done was actually get the power back on, send our folks to that location, basically wait for the same. Uh, event to occur again and, and perhaps make a diagnostic 
um, discovery at that time and be able to prevent it in the future. But again, the customer would have been out of power. They would have lost productivity. They wouldn't have been happy, and it, w- it would not have been a good situation for any of us. Mm-hmm. But using the pull top telemetry from those interruptor switches, we were able to go back and query what had happened in the past, and were able to see that there was actually a fault that occurred on the line. It had tripped something, and so we were able to go back to the customer and say, if you'll change your settings on your equipment, you can keep this from happening mm-hmm. going forward. It was a very valuable lesson for us that we need to we need to use that data that we're pulling back for the smart grid to help our customers. Mm-hmm. And is there, um, and we talked operationally, are there new opportunities that open up if you are, you know, if, if you look at the business community as a whole, are there new opportunities that open up as a result of better energy management? Well, certainly um, access to better management tools, access to more information helps you uh, control your usage better. And the advantage that the smart grid has given Chattanooga is that this fiber optic network, all this information is available anywhere in our 600-square-mile area. Mm-hmm. So while if you're looking to locate a business, uh, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the far rural area of our service area or if you're sitting right downtown. You have access to the same tools that any large business has had access to in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, what about business attraction? Um, because I don't know... If if it was someone I talked to at EPB or maybe somewhere in another community, but um, do you use or does the chamber use this reliability of the grid as a tool to bring businesses in? Yes, absolutely. We have a very active, very productive chamber organization, um, and and we we can point to some uh, large successes in the community. Um, that actually built facilities in the community, not entirely because of smart grid, not entirely because of our high-speed services, but certainly played a factor in their decision. Um, uh, uh, Volkswagen manufacturing Mm -hmm. is probably the most prominent of those. Um, We also have a large distribution site for Amazon. There have been countless number of small businesses. Uh, We have a great entrepreneurial spirit in Chattanooga. And again, because we're putting the tools that very large businesses used to have access to in the hands of everyone, we're seeing a big uptick in our small business Uh um, growth, uh, creation and growth. When we were doing the business plan, um, we worked with a a professor at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga who partnered with uh, two other colleagues from other universities, and we asked them to give us a forecast, make a projection of what impact a network like this would have on on Chattanooga. And and their findings were that over a 10-year period, we could look for about 3,700 new jobs Mm -hmm. and about $1.2 billion in capital investment over a 10-year period to come to the community as a result of building something like this. Well, I'm happy to say we had our third anniversary um, on September the 15th, we can the community can can actually point to about 4,800 new jobs, mm-hmm. um, 1.3 million dollars in capital investment that has come to the community in part because of this access to more reliable power in these broadband services. And and so the chain of that goes that you you have the network, you ensure greater reliability, 
you use that as a leveraging tool to get people to come on to, to come to Chattanooga, mm-hmm. and those people coming to Chattanooga citing this as one of the reasons why they've come to town, then gets translated out to the 4,800 jobs. 4,800 new jobs. Mm-hmm. And what was the, the dollar? 1.3. Billion dollars in new capital investment. That's billion. That's with a B. One point. Okay. So it's been because one of the issues with economic development and broadband has been the issue of measuring, quantifying, projecting. Or I probably want to put the projecting part first. But in essence, people feel like, well, we can't really quantify this. And when opponents, you know, talk against uh, broadband or who needs, you know, the fiber network. It becomes an issue of of um, qualitative more so than quantitative. But how has has EPB ad, uh, addressed the issue of trying to quantify things, both on the front end and and the back end? I know you relied relied a lot on the Berkeley study, but I think what there were some other steps that you that your group took to to kind of get a a, a clearer picture on what the potential impact would be. We did. We we uh, actually were in a planning process for um, almost five years. Um, we spent a lot of time talking to what we thought would be our customers. What were you looking for in products? What did you buy? What did you think was missing in the community? Um, our CEO sat down with a number of CEOs in the community and had um, one-on-one conversations. We met with neighborhood association groups, large groups. We had meetings on cul-de-sacs. Um, and our message was consistent. Uh, is this something you want us to do? Do you see a need for it? And do you want us to go forward? Um, let us know one way. Let our board of directors know. Let our city council know. And overall, the uh, feedback was absolutely a resounding yes. Mm-hmm. Go forward. Um, we also had conduct- we conducted some independent studies of our own performance. We looked at some of our own numbers and felt very comfortable that we matched up with the projections of the Berkeley study and others. Um, the study I referenced before from um, the gentleman at University of Tennessee mm-hmm. actually was tied to an in-plan model, um, which is a, a, which is not solely used to just in, um, to uh, project impact from a fiber optic network. It actually is a well-known tool to project in, input project impact of large capital intensive projects like an airport Mm -hmm. or an FL franchise or something like that. So it wasn't a study methodology that was invented for for this deployment or for anything like this. Mm -hmm. Now when you now were you were involved like were you were involved directly with the original planning group? Yes. Oh okay. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to do that. That All right. No no that's up to that. That's good stuff. (laughs) That's good stuff. So my my question is, um, was there a visionary among your group that sort of saw this bigger this bigger picture, or did the pieces kind of come together over time? You know, first there was well, we could save a bunch of money, then we could the businesses could save money, and you know, was it linear, or did someone kind of at the beginning see? Uh, you know, see that big picture potential. You know, I think EPB is extremely fortunate um, to work for a public power, municipally owned utility. You really have to understand the mission and you have to buy into the mission. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that you're there really to serve the community. And and if you go back to our mission, it, it kind of makes it easy to make these decisions. If you bounce everything you do or every decision you make over, is it 
is it compatible with your mission? Does it further what you were created to do? It makes decision making uh, fairly easy. So we do have a great leadership team. And if uh, he probably wouldn't want me to say this, but um, if I had to say there was one visionary, certainly our CEO Harold the Priest mm-hmm. um, uh, really has been an extremely strong influence behind this project from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he he had the vision to create um, a CELEC organization as part of EPB, which was originally known originally EPB Telecom. We went into the ISP business in 2004, and it really grew. As that business became uh, profitable, we saw the potential. We knew that we had the folks. We had hired the right people um, to to actually operationalize it. And he also had the vision to see that you can manage this fiber optic network, whether it's for electric or for its communication, with the same people that you have running your electric system. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the people that are risking their lives every day mm-hmm. um, to bring you electric power. They can certainly handle the communication piece of this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been fortunate to have several visionaries. Okay, great. And And over time, this has... Uh, this has panned out. I, I'm curious when EPB uh, started moving uh, into the uh, broadband space, uh, particularly for um, you know for selling the services. Were people aware of the value to Smart Grid? Were they aware of the value of the network as an asset before they even got? You know, started hearing about oh, we could get faster broadband. You know, I wish, I wish that uh, <laughs> that, that they had seen that. Um, you know, interestingly enough, um, the first questions we got were, "How many channels do you have? <laughs> How many are going to be HD? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of thing." Which is great, which is fine. We're in we're in that business too. But over time, uh, Chattanooga has seen some extremely violent weather, just like. Uh, other areas of the country, and and I think now after the last probably 18 months, you know, we had nine tornadoes hit us one day in April. We've had some tremendous storms. I think now with those type of weather events, people are beginning to see the value of the smart grid. Mm-hmm. We're happy that they see value in any of our services. Hmm. That. Um, so let's project a little bit. Let to other communities. Would it make sense? In the early days of the planning, this is going to be a two-part question. Uh, The first part is, would it make sense to plan, say, more for the the smart grid side than the broadband side? In other words, let the smart grid be the driver, in essence, as opposed to a lot of communities want to build a broadband network. Now, again, not there's anything wrong with that, but that's a you know it's a question of now that we have hindsight behind us, you know, would we recommend that? And then the second part of that would be, well, when we start to promote the broadband service, does it, you know, make sense to market that other capability um, as as well, the, the the smart grid capability? Well, certainly in the case of EPB as an electric power distributor, it made much more sense for us to start with the smart grid. Mm-hmm. That is that is our core business. Um, we also knew that we needed the fiber infrastructure to bring back all those. It, literally billions of pieces of information back. Um, so, so it was a given that we needed the fiber infrastructure. We also um, felt like Chattanooga at the time was pretty underserved mm-hmm. um, from a standpoint of communications. You know, Chattanooga was not 
a, a huge city. We're growing. We're vibrant. Um, our downtown's been been completely revitalized. We're definitely moving in, in, a, in the right direction. Um, but we really needed both in the case of Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. We needed uh, to turn the town from uh, where it had been before. You know, we started as the Dynamo of Dixie at the beginning of the century. <laughs> you know, Walter Cronkite opened the CBS Nightly News by, in 1969 by calling us the, the country's dirtiest little city. I mean, that, that was had harsh. To, that, that, that had was to, harsh. <laughs> that had to be our low point, you know. Right. Um, so we actually, for Chattanooga, needed both. But I think the model is applicable for many communities mm -hmm. across the country. Because I think that, um, you know, as I, being a marketing person, um, I realized that there are a number of ways that you can you can promote something, that you can market something. And while there is value in being focused, I think that if you look at the bigger picture of marketing, you know, that you want to create a, a truly supportive environment, that it may make sense to for other communities to emphasize the smart grid aspect of it first. Uh, for one thing, it takes away the triviality uh, argument, what I call the triviality mm -hmm. argument, which, which is why are we spending tax dollars to build broadband? Why are we having all this angst and agony because America doesn't have fast broadband and so forth? And so it lets people who are critical, not even just of, the, uh, of a municipality owning it, but it is critical, this whole idea that we need to build better broadband regardless of who does it. Right. right? I think then, well, then you need to, if you're going to be successful in the long run, you have to counter that kind of negativity. And the best way to do it is to say, hey, you know, we actually are more than just fast mm -hmm. internet. We're mm -hmm. we're smart grid. We're economic development. In other words, you know, pointing out those other uh, that that's a tremendous way to go about um, um, making people aware of your business. I, I will say, EPB's deployment was not did not include any tax dollars whatsoever. So that makes oh, that's, that this is true. A, this is true. That right. That makes that a part a little bit in that example. But you know, electricity is tough to market. I mean, people. You just take it for granted. Unless you go in a room and flip the switch and it doesn't come on, you right. don't really think about it that you much. think about it when you're missing it. You're right. You're exactly right, <laughs> which is not of the best all situations. So while I agree with you that that is absolutely, there is so much more value in what the smart grid, more reliable power, ways to hold down your usage or just to hold down your, your the cost to you, to give you that control are, are universally much more important reasons. Frankly, as a consumer, many folks are concerned about what kind of speed do I have on my internet? How many channels do I have? Mm -hmm. How fast is it? How many video on demand? Which is all good too. All those things have a place that's just usually more that usually sparks more interest initially, but it's not the whole picture by any means. Right. Because from a financial standpoint, I mean as in the the financial well being of the entity that's selling the broadband mm -hmm. These other things seem to be of, of stronger interest. In other words, um, the the value to me of smart grid as a business asset, if I'm a utility, uh, has high value. The if I look at my customer base, broadband, high speed broadband actually has you know more value that people are willing to spend more money for, 
as a business user more so than a consumer it's user. really it's really in in the case of our deployment it's a win-win for the entire community mm -hmm. because you're exactly right the benefits of the smart grid pay for the system right if we never sold the broadband service it would pay for the system mm -hmm. and benefits to the community and operational savings to the utility but then on top of that you add uh, revenue generated by the sale of these broadband services and you really win both ways mm -hmm. um, this year we we, we are, became profitable the fiber optics grid as a standalone division became profitable and I'll also tell you that we put 17 million dollars of revenue into the electric side of our business in allocation and in fees and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um, that 17 million dollars that the electric utility would not have gotten in cash um, and, and we estimate that, that we've been able to hold rates down by about 5% over where they would have been without that $17 million. So whether you're a customer of ours of our broadband services or not, you still have access to better power. Mm -hmm. And then you also have access to a lower power mm -hmm. because, of the, because of the broadband services. So let's talk about the pivot point from when you are looking at the fiber investment and the fiber usage as a um, a smart grid play, as it were. And now we're saying, okay, well, we want to now sell broadband services. What are the changes that have to happen to the utility company in order to make that pivot? Well, you, there really has to be a broad um, culture change. Um, and, and EPB had been about the business of changing the culture for about 10 years before we ever got into the business. Um, you know, selling electricity is somewhat a monopoly, at least it is in our area, but you really, we, we all understand that you cannot act like a monopoly. Mm -hmm. uh, people will have choices, and that's just not really core to our mission. Um, so y you've got the culture change going on. Prior to going into the broadband business, we didn't go inside of people's homes. I mean, basically, if we came to fix something or, or to uh, work on your meter or on your drop or something like that, we stayed outside of your house. Um, even as a CLEC or competitive local exchange company, we brought our communication services to a DMARC inside your business. We didn't go inside your business. We mm -hmm. didn't wire the phones on your desk or anything. So we really had to go about the business of training our entire company. Now you're inside people's homes. Now you're inside people's business. It really is about giving that personalized, great customer service. Um, EPB has a, good, a great reputation for good customer service. We just needed to kick it up a notch, not necessarily get any better, but also extend that same good service when we're inside folks' homes. Mm, okay. So it's a... Um uh, it's a thinking shift. Um, do you have to change the operational structure very much? Do you have to add different people? Uh, you know, are there changes that way? You know, we we did add a few people with uh, specialized knowledge. Um, again, we were a CLEC before, so we had some folks with good telephony background. We were an ISP, so we had um, a few people that were core to the business that understood that. But by and large, um, over the last three years, um, pretty much our, our operations are integrated across the board. Mm -hmm. um, I think at, a, at our, our highest peak, we probably had about 30 people who were specialized only in the communication 
products. That's pretty much gone away. We are a very flat, non-siloed organization. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can do it on electric, you need to be able to do it on, on um, communications or vice versa. It's just a lot more efficient and makes good sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, from a, from a marketing perspective, do you add a certain level of um, marketing expense once you add on the internet business, and are there other sort of I don't know additional costs? I mean, you talked that basically there's yeah. there's not a lot of change per se, but now all of a sudden, don't you end up having to market more? Because when you were, when you had the smart grid, there really wasn't a need to market it so much. It just it was there. Well, you know, it, it changes your focus a little bit. We've always tried to be very involved in the community. We sponsor events. We have public service announcements. We're all we've always been about educating our folks. Don't go near drop lines. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And um, you know, we have a little over 400 employees, and they all live in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're out in the community. We're well known. Um, our brand has a has a good perception in the community. We had to change that a little bit because now you're in a competitive head-to-head business. Aha, yes, now you're indeed. going against the big guys. Right, right. So you need to be able to talk about your products knowing that you're the last one into the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does change the way you talk about things a little bit. Right. Now, yesterday we had... Uh, um, one of the managers, one of the senior managers from Lafayette, in mm-hmm. to talk about uh, their their uh, pro- um, project. Now, one of the points that came out was um, you have an advantage being the hometown team. So there's a certain level of civic pride and and community ownership that comes into play. But you know, I asked the question. You know, can you? win just by being the hometown team, or do you have to have something more than than that going for you? You know, I agree that being the hometown team helps, and and certainly we're we being local is is a big advantage. But it absolutely is not the only thing you have to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, our philosophy from entering the market was to deliver a superior product mm-hmm. and continue to add value all along the way. Um, so. Local is great, and I think it's one of the reasons people um, so enthusiastically embrace our products. But you got to earn that every single day. Mm-hmm. Your products have to be better. Your products have to be cost competitive. Every time the technician's in your home or the phone rings, you have to be better mm-hmm. than your competition. Mm-hmm. Now, I will would make the assumption that any community that owns its own utility the utility is the logical choice to pursue broadband, starting with the smart grid enhancement as maybe the cost justifier. But but they have the relationships, they have the customer service apparatus, they have, um, you know, the, the deployment. I mean, you know, you're used to rolling trucks mm-hmm. to deal mm-hmm. with issues and so forth. Do you think public utilities have you know, an inherent advantage that works to the community's favor. You know, if I were a community saying, okay, we can, you know, we can start a, a nonprofit organization, we can have the city, you know, directly, the, the municipal government directly own it. I mean, you have these choices, 
does it make sense to say, well, maybe you should just default to the public utility? Well, I, th I think that in many cases the public utility is a great choice. Um, there are also examples of public-private partnerships. There are, different, um, there are different ways you can go about doing You can go about doing this. Um, you know, as, as a utility, as a public utility, we build infrastructure. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. So building this broadband network was a natural evolution for us. We have the poles. We have the right-of-way. We have the equipment. We have the expertise. We manage these large capital projects day in, day out. So for us, it made sense. Um, and I think in many, many communities in the country, it would make sense. Um, I think there are probably other options, too, and I think it really depends on what resources you have in your community. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain mindset that needs to be in place either on the part of the utility or the part of the community in order for this kind of an idea to take? Well, first you, first you have to do, I, I think, for the right reasons. You're, you, you need to, I would hope that utility would be would do it for the benefit of the community mm -hmm. um, and, and that that is more than likely core to their mission and then the community has to want you to do it I mean that's the other piece of this you have to earn their respect they have to have the confidence that you are going to spend the money wisely as an investment and that you're going to give them products that have more value um, than what they could currently get in the market so it's kind of little bits and pieces of all of that mm -hmm. So it all kind of uh, can can make a lot of um, can make a lot of sense. Um, why is it that it seems there is less interest among uh, private utilities than public utilities to get into the to the space? Now, with the public utility, we will assume at least for the moment, that people want to be in, you know, the public utility wants to be in because it's a community effort and they are part of the community. Community, But but it seems like the there's a reluctance on the private utility side. Has anyone explored or surveyed or tried to figure out exactly why that is? You know, I ha I, I'm not aware of that. I, I would just probably look at it as saying that our customers or our rate payers are, are our stockholders. Right. And we're actually building and creating things for our stockholders. So if your stockholders are different or driven by different um, desires, if they're looking for a return on investment, there's nothing wrong with that either. Mm -hmm. It's just different than what public power is driven by. So it's a it's a it's a business philosophy, and uh, and it may be that the uh, the private utility doesn't see this as being a worthwhile a worthwhile adventure. I can just look at it from the way we went at it, mm -hmm. and I, I, that is not based fact based at all. Okay. <laughs> one one of these days, I think that somebody should um, should step up and and do that kind of uh, research. You know, because I look at it like I had a conversation here earlier. With a person who is on a uh, who's with a telecom co-op, and we were discussing the fact that well, you know, as a telecom co-op, going into the broadband business was like a logical extension. Mm -hmm. You know, I sort of look at a public utility and say, well, you know, given all the apparatus, all the things that you described that EPB has as an advantage, if I were a private utility, I would look at it the same way as is. Well, this is just an extension. Of what we do, but that's probably a discussion for other minds to kind of come at. Well, it certainly seems logical, though. <laughs> it certainly does, certainly does that. Uh -huh. Let's talk about um, the network and economic development 
and that's kind of you know my running theme for this week because I'm I'm about to release my uh, survey report on uh, having uh, interviewed economic development professionals to gauge you know how they see broadband impacting economic development from uh, Chattanooga's perspective. What has a gig done for the economic? outlook for the city? I think the city's revitalized. Um, just like all of our customers have access to the smart grid infrastructure, they all also have access to what we call these, these next generation uh, communication services. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, We announced the uh, ubiquitous or universal availability of a gig two years ago, in fact, at this conference at the Fiber to the Home conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and since that time, we've had tremendous economic growth. Um, the unemployment rate in Chattanooga has is, is been consistently below that at a national level. Um, Chattanooga, the population in Chattanooga is, is growing um, for the first time in many, many years. All of these are very positive indicators of a great and vibrant growing city. Um, you know, access to gigabit, access to these uh, private line type services that are, we offer, a VLAN service or virtual local area network, are services that have been traditionally available to large companies for a long time, mm-hmm. but you had to spend a lot of money to get it, and you also had to be in an area where that those services were available. Well, the difference in Chattanooga is even the very small customers have access to that type of bandwidth, to that same type of um, uh, private type networks um, that even the big that only big customers use. To. So it really does put uh, tools in the hands of small businesses that were previously only available to those folks who were could and were willing to spend a lot of money to to get those. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the small business side, we're basically talking about making the small business more competitive? Yes, okay. yes. Giving them the tools to, um, you know, we heard in the morning session about uh, knocking down borders and, mm-hmm. and really making businesses borderless and access to these type of uh, internet speeds and low latency performance um, is really what knocks down those borders. Mm-hmm. And we... Um, are seeing a number of areas where, where where broadband is making a difference, and maybe you know the the Chattanooga is in a good position to comment on this. Um, one of my assumptions, one of the things that my survey actually asked the question about is, um, can you use this technology to revitalize an area? Like in where I live in Oakland, we have a number of areas where there are you know, many blocks of the abandoned warehouses and abandoned buildings, but the potential for revitalizing. In other words, there's space there, it's cheap land, it's cheap rent, right? You know, would and the question is, would broadband be that missing ingredient that would allow the city to revitalize that area? You know, you guys have gone through a lot of revitalization since, you, you know, since the Walter Cronkite uh, days. Um do you see broadband as having that ability to take and turn around blighted areas? Yes, with, without a doubt. And again, because um, because the services are universally available, it doesn't matter. In the blighted areas, in the rural areas, you still have access to, to those those type of tools. We you know we can point to we we talk about the. Uh, Volkswagen, and we talk about the Amazon, which are great wins for the community, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But there are other businesses that have moved to Chattanooga, who have relocated to Chattanooga, and whose site is part of the reason for for coming. HomeServe, 
um, uh, Claris Networks, who who is moving most of their operations to Chattanooga from Knoxville, and we're delighted with that. But it's access to this this type of bandwidth and, and cost-effective doses mm -hmm. that really is what's kind of pushing Chattanooga out in front. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about you know steps to move forward. We're going to shift to shift you to peer counseling mode. All right, you've got folks on the line, folks on the air that are saying, well, maybe we should uh, try to get our public utility engaged. Uh, maybe we should look at uh, revamping our smart grid as the first step or the first reason for having uh, a fiber network. What would you tell them? What are like the first, I don't know, three, four steps? You probably need to talk to your public utility. Okay. You need to talk to your city council mm -hmm. or your governing, um, uh, your elected officials in your area, and, and really demand that you have um, these type of tools. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the average bandwidth speed in the United States is five megs. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you on a good day. On a good day, <laughs> um, we we celebrate our third birthday, and on on two weeks ago we upped our slowest or our lowest speed tier to 50 megs up and down. Mm -hmm. But that's because we felt like the community could use it and, and and would use it. So I think you need to you need to talk to your elected officials. You need to talk to your public utility, and you need to demand that you should have access to these type of tools. Mm -hmm. You need it for your future. Your city needs it for their future. And you need it for your own personal future. Mm -hmm. Is it um, possible if I were in planning mode? You know, I'm community X, want to have broadband. You know, I'm thinking, well, you know, we have a public utility. If financial, uh, from a financial planning perspective, if I plan to put a fiber network in some of my more rural areas as well as my more urban areas, because you guys cover both. Um, and I justified that building of the infrastructure based on the smart grid improvements and so forth. Have I now made it a um, made the case for bringing the internet very minor? In other words, if I were to look at 600 square miles and said, okay, we're going to build a broadband network, right? Someone would probably say that's going to be, you know, X millions of dollars because you have all this land to cover, you know, and on top of that, the expense of building it, in some of my more rural areas, I only have, you know, a few homes per square mile, so the revenue potential is small. So I got a big dollar investment because I got a big land area. Mm -hmm. I've got mixed you know, subscriber revenue potential, right? That that's High density the density and low density. Exactly, right. exactly, right? So if I plan it from the broadband perspective, that's what I'm looking at. But if I go and let's say, well, let's build a 600 mile um, fiber enhancement of the smart grid, in which case I've got to bring electricity to the furthest, most, mm -hmm. you know, the low density as well as the high density. Do the economics almost work out differently as a financial plan? Well, if you look at the financial plan separately, it may very well. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but again, Chattanooga, as you mentioned, had a, had a good mixture of high-density miles as, as well as some rural miles. But overall, it worked out 
for both sides for, for EPB. Mm-hmm. Um, you may have to look at the um, situation as a whole. You may have to look at your smart grid deployment and your broadband deployment and come to some sort of middle of the road, but it will be, it very well can be profitable mm-hmm. when you consider both of them together. Okay. Now, when when you guys were in the early planning stage, had people thought about providing services or did the the idea of providing services come somewhere after the smart grid was jamming? Well, we we were working on the smart grid, but we also ran a business-to-business CLEC mm-hmm. already. Okay. So we served about 2,000 of our business customers already with a much smaller fiber oh, network. I... Um, we served Internet and phone, mm-hmm. just business. Okay. Okay. Um, it was not the Gpon technology. It, it was it was not the same network, but very robust mm-hmm. um, compared to what what was available in the area. So we did have some experience, and we knew that we wanted to take that technology, take it further, give those same tools that the big customers had that we had built to in Chattanooga, and deploy that all across our service area. Mm-hmm. So it was a uh, so you, so you had a running start. We had a running start in that piece of the business. Okay, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, um, okay, so now, now if you didn't have that, uh, do you still see the bridge being able to be crossed? In other words, a company with a public utility could still cross that bridge. You know, starting with a uh, well, maybe the better question would be. Uh, to be asked is if someone is starting from scratch should they plan for both from the from the outset i, I think it's a win win okay. uh, from from our standpoint to plan for both mm-hmm. um and I, i'll tell you that um if you're an electric utility you have already the brain power mm-hmm. and the manpower to make this work okay. you may have to hire some experts and see them in in, in the communication um, industry in your organization, but that's only for a short time. Okay. That knowledge will spread. Okay. Um, so it, it, the businesses cross over much more than I would have ever thought. Mm-hmm. If I look at the the smart grid side of the the business first, what are some of the biggest uh, challenges that you had to overcome? Um, you know, challenges from the smart grid perspective, um, it, it probably was just the speed of the build of the network. Mm, okay. It wasn't really a problem for us, but we, we just, we literally built it in less than three years, and that's about 6,500 miles of fiber um, fiber network that went up in, in about a three-year period. Wow. So while that wasn't a challenge, that was certainly our primary focus mm-hmm. for about 36 months. Okay. And then um, moving over to the Internet side, what were some of the, the, the challenges, minor or, or not, um, in in that side of the business? I think if we had it to do over again, um, we would probably have launched with a much more aggressive Internet product. Our, when we entered the business in 2009, we launched with a 15-meg offer. Mm-hmm. And at that time, um, the incumbents were, that was really the top level of their services. So we said, okay, our bottom level will be their top. Okay. Well, that just kind of started in a we're faster, you're faster, back and forth, kind mm-hmm. of gradually ratcheting up the speeds um, over time. And that's really what led to us in 2010 just saying, gloves are off, go the full gig, it's available. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, 
Um, in 2010, we doubled our speed, so our lowest speed was 30. Mm-hmm. And then I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we lowered, uh, we raised that lower speed to 50. If we had to do over again, we probably would just have uh, hit the market running a little bit faster with with the larger internet. Just product. play the cars from the outset just and move. Just go with it. <laughs> That's what you do best with this fiber network. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody can argue with you over your capabilities or latency on these networks. You might as well go with it. Mm-hmm. Now you had uh, you know you talked about the economic benefit you know mm-hmm. the number of jobs and uh, the number of dollars who was the uh, I don't know person well not necessarily like person by name but who uh, did the the metrics assessment in other words to say okay we've achieved this I mentioned earlier we have a terrific um, very active chamber. Organization mm-hmm. Chamber of Commerce in Chattanooga. They do a great job of bringing in prospects and taking them through the process. We rely on their metrics. Okay. I mean, we rely on the numbers that they publish uh, mm-hmm. to calculate the impact to Chattanooga. Okay. So they're 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 doing uh, also, I assume, the like the impact on businesses and okay, because th- that would be. Um, by the way, does does Chattanooga have a formal? Economic Development Agency? Um, there is a group at the Chamber. There is an Economic Development Association um, as part of the state, a regional economic okay. development. There's actually a cabinet post of economic development at the state level. Okay, okay. Um, but not one for the... There is one that encompasses Chattanooga. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, because one, one of the things I found interesting, um, oh, I don't know, about a month ago, was uh, city planners. I think in my mind, over the years, I've always assumed that city planner, regional planner, they're just a division of the economic development agency or department or whatever a city might have. Come to find out, no, they are a separate entity. Also came to find out that not always do the city planners interact with the economic development folks when one or the other decides that having broadband is a good thing. And so we had a whole show about, you know, how, how do we like make people more aware of, of city planning and so forth? Do you have a general, I don't know, um, assessment of how people should communities should engage both of you know both of those entities? You know, Chattanooga is a, a good model for um, building um, support from a grassroots level. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the Walter Cronkite situation, which really kind of rallied the community prior to even creation of the EPA. Of mm-hmm. How do you clean up the air? Right. Um, and then um, our Mayor Bob Corker uh, started uh, actually Chattanooga Vision, Vision 2000, which what do you want your community to become? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a, a beautiful aquarium that anchors the, the um, southern end of our, the northern end of our, our uh, downtown. And all of that really came out of a visioning process that, it, that the community came together. There were public meetings mm-hmm. where they literally drew on sheets of paper what you wanted on the riverfront, what was going to take place. Different committees were formed. And, and, and Chattanooga really did it from a grassroots level up. Mm-hmm. So that, in some respects, is different, I assume, than how other cities approach the, the, the planning function. You know, I think we stole that idea for some, for some good cities, but, but that's okay, too. It right, worked. Right. It worked. Um, so you can you, there's there is a great sense of civic pride in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we hosted the gig tank right, a couple right, weeks right. ago. 
Um, that was a fun time. That was fun. It was exciting. <laughs> you know, it started out with a $50,000 prize mm-hmm. by some young venture capitalists. It right. grew into $300,000 with some great corporate sponsors. Wow. Chattanooga had 36 brilliant entrepreneurs and students who mm-hmm. spent the summer with us, all trying to solve the problem, what do you do with the gig? Right. And and if you could have seen, I know you did, Craig, the, the room that was packed. Right. Presentation there were like day. 500 people. You had an yeah, overflow room. Too, we did. It was great. <laughs> and that kind of enthusiasm has just spread through mm-hmm. the to the community. It's, a, it's about community pride. Right. And this is this is just one of a number of things that Chattanooga should be proud of. So you know, in the last minute and a half, I actually want to hit that subject of the value. What is the value of civic pride as an economic driver? Yeah, I don't know that you can value that. Um, you can look at the, um, I guess, the sum of all the parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got better operational efficiency, more reliable power. You've got access to broadband, all of which you can attach a value to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a tremendous value. But when you look at the whole of that, I think it really makes Chattanooga or any community um, really virtually unstoppable. Mm-hmm. So would I be correct then in advising, you know, I I do consulting when I'm not doing this bad boy of broadband exercise, um, you know, to to basically tell people, look, you know, part of the impact, the economic impact that you're going to get from broadband is going to rely in a certain extent on how much buy-in there is by the community and how you can harness that buy-in, that sense of civic pride, to drive your your programs, whether it's you know how do you use a gig, you know how do you employ a gig and you know in the medical uh, care route. I mean, all there's all these various you know ideas for how to do this that are kind of up there and you know business school level kinds of discussions. But it seems like it, you know at the ability to harness the civic engagement element is going to be what will drive the power of your broadband to eventually be an economic development tool. I think it drives it beyond any monetary number that we could put into it. Excellent. Well, this, as always, has been a great conversation, you know, and I and I thank you for being on the show today and um, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. And thanks for letting me join you today. No worries. Alrighty. You have a great day. You too. Thank you. All righty. We're going to uh, shift gears here a little bit. Um, I want to talk about, obviously, broadband, economic development, those, those key issues. Uh, it's interesting to note, you know, how different communities go about this. You know, one of the things that could lead folks into a troubled spot is to assume that one community's success can be replicated everywhere. And so you've got to look at large cities, and you've got to look at the medium-sized cities and, and so forth, and you have to look at smaller uh, smaller towns. So I think that, you know, one of the, the objectives of, of my show and, and, and my business is trying to define some of these issues on broadband and economic development based on, you know, who the, the type of community that we're talking about. And so... Our next guest is from a small uh, a small town many people probably or may not have heard of uh, called Kutztown, uh, which is in Pennsylvania. They are, again, they're, you know, they're a small town, but they have big influence from the standpoint of they've been at this for 10 years, uh, their community network. 
And I think one of the pushbacks, you know, we hear critics of community broadband is that these networks will never be successful. I somehow think that if you can be in this business for 10 years, be a small town, you've got a lot going on and you probably have a lot to say. And so in that in that vein, in that philosophy, uh, our next guest is the IT director for the city, uh, Frank Caruso, who I want to thank you for being a guest on the show today. Uh, and, and welcome. Welcome to the show. I appreciate the opportunity to share a story. Excellent. Great opportunity. So... So you have probably seen a lot and done a lot in 10 years that uh, you guys have been around. It's been an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of talk about us not making the first two years, right. five years. Uh, that's kind of called down now. Okay. Um, we are very well entrenched. Our community is supportive of our system. Um, we continue to keep growing it. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been a very, very exciting time for us. So... Tell us a little bit about how the project started, because 10 years ago, um, broadband wasn't a concept, really. I mean, there was Internet access, kind of, sort of, but speeds were slower, and, and only small towns were really doing their own thing. And, uh, the way it started uh, actually came about with our utilities, and we took a look at monitoring our electric utility system, our substations, our water system, um, and then actually trying to aggregate our buildings and offices and consolidate our networks together. Mm -hmm. It was a, a trip to Florida to a national conference where we first started to see the opportunity to reach the home with the technology of fiber. And back in 2002, this is all new pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You would not find this affor an affordable type of an operation and you'd be able to put that kind of a network in place. But it was very intriguing. We, and we had a, uh, a borough manager that had an engineering degree. So when we started talking about this, we started to realize that we, we have the mechanisms to do this. We have mm -hmm. the workforce. We, we have ownership to right-of-ways. We mm -hmm. have access to properties. Um, we have all the tools to put this together. We're in a little rural community. Nobody's paying attention to us. And, and at that time, as you said, you're dealing with one-way cable modem service. You're, you're dealing with set-top boxes on low-end television type services. So the community as a college community just recognized that there was a need to help continue to sustain itself mm -hmm. um, and become you know, an independent type of an operator. Now, what's very interesting is I attended the first Fiber to the Home show. Oh, really? So you are a veteran of this whole absolutely. world. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, you could have put two rows of people that were sitting in the room at that point in time. So the Fiber to the Home Council has just grown this at such a great pace. There's uh, so many providers and options that are out there mm -hmm. now. I wish they would have been out there at the time that we were doing this. Uh -huh. um, just the opportunity of being able to cooperative business ventures. Uh, just was not on the table at the time and available to us. Mm -hmm. And we did uh, put RFPs out in order to find service providers. There was that uh, build it and they will come kind right, of a right. statement going around. And, um, you know, we still had our own need and our, our own, you know, pieces that we had to actually deal with. And a new communications mechanism was core to that. And fiber was actually what that was. Now, expanding it out in order to do Internet and television, we just felt would 
uh, help the community out and then help us continue to keep growing that community. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of just dollars and cents, but keeping that community whole. Right, okay. So so folks there, even in a pioneering environment, uh, understood the value, you know, even though it wasn't clear. I mean, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have you know, mega bandwidth as even an enticement or whatever, but it sounds like there were a number of people that had, I guess what my grandmother would call a worldly vision. You kind of sort of saw a bigger picture of where this might go and then decided to jump on it. it, it true, and what's really unique about Kutztown itself, they um, are just the perfect model of people wanting to be an independent operation. Mm -hmm. By doing their own electric, doing the water and sewer, they really wanted that community to be able to uh, make changes to its system, control its own destiny. And so the type of people that sat on the council at that time um, had the vision. And I give them a lot of credit for being back in 2000 to have that type of vision when you're not seeing this actually happening across the country. So it really started off in 1996. It was a comprehensive plan. And part of that was uh, what happens if deregulation of electricity takes place or our electric service and the cost of providing electricity starts to skyrocket. What do we do? And so they were looking at other ways of we don't want property taxes driving this community. Mm-hmm. So what other ways would we be able to leverage the assets and infrastructure of what we have? Mm-hmm. And a lot of this was based off of that plan. And a couple studies were done to say, yes, it's feasible, you know, you can do it. And then there were a couple studies that said, you know what, you're too small, you'll never be able to do it, you won't be able to compete. Um, you know, the way that the uh, incumbents are in place, they'll just drive you out of business from doing it. But we still had that own need within our own operations to mm-hmm. have this infrastructure in place. So regardless, that infrastructure um, has value to this community. Right. And that brings up an interesting question. So I can't even remember where it was anymore that I heard that I heard this within the last month that the first effort by a community should be to create an asset rather than to create a service. Because once you create an asset, people look at the asset and say, oh, we can do this because we have this asset. We can do X and Y because we have this access. I'm sorry, because we have this asset. We're not looking at it as, you know, am I going to get broadband? Or as, as um, Katie mentioned in her interview, you know, people come up and say, well, you know, can I get 100 channels? Right? Because people just now think of you as just another service, and they're already comparing you against the incumbents because they want to know, you know, well, what can I get? But when you create the asset, you create an asset, you say, well, this has value to the community because it opens up, you know, all of this technology options to us. Absolutely. And then your thinking changes. Absolutely. Okay. And what happens with just putting that infrastructure in place, other things start to fall onto the table. Uh And now we start to to be able to expand our thinking a little Mm -hmm. bit and go beyond the traditional. And it's very important that the uh, asset and that structure is just in place. And it's hard to, to envision what will tomorrow be like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was funny this morning listening to about you know YouTube coming to life and Facebook and the number of users that are uh, sitting on networks right now. We were looking at one to two people. We're mm-hmm. looking at six to eight now. You know, in a mm-hmm. few years, we're going to look at thirteen to fifteen devices that are on from a single user. So, 
where we're headed into this next generation is just um, you know amazing. This technology though puts us in that place to continue to be able to leverage that and, and continue to keep growing. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of a specific um, plan, what was the end game considered? I mean, when you started, I mean, obviously we know where it is now, I mean, what, we, what you have now, but when you were starting, what was, the, what was the game plan? What were you really hoping to have at the end of a, some point in time? Um, the, the old saying, build it and they will come. What right. we were hoping for was an open access network of providers to okay. be able to bring services to the community. So there were choice okay, and a lot of choice. Um, not just one or two players, but whoever wanted to bring a service into that community has that ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really a driving force you know, behind just putting it in place. Now, we do do automated metering. So mm-hmm. our metering system was part of this, too, and putting that in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think overall, what we were looking for was to Im- improve that the quality of life there. Mm-hmm. Empty houses, boarded-up buildings, streets that can't be repaired is not a, a good community to... Right. You don't have a lot of positive atmosphere there at that point. Right, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, once you have that asset in place, you know, there is this... Even though it, it, it was not that they would come because we build it, okay, mm-hmm. and it, it, that really did not happen. Okay, but as you see this going on, I'm seeing it in other com- communities. Mm-hmm. I knew this was a perfect example. I mean, you get you get big businesses, and all of a sudden they're looking and they're seeing what kind of an infrastructure is there mm-hmm. that we can move our operation to, and what do you have? Um, you've just got a, a mark on there business plan and mm-hmm. they're going to they will come. Mm-hmm. So I think that just by having that infrastructure and having the capabilities of where we can reach with this um, in, in our level to reach up to 100 meg that service at the home. But there, there's a, there are a lot of people, especially in a small rural community that take a look at this and say what do we need that for? Uh, Why right, do we right, need right, it? Right, you right. know, we, we're really going to have to have that. But what we're seeing is it's that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. That's what the requirement is going to be. And we're going to see more and more of this in-home type of technology to where bandwidth is going to be the driving force in order for that, a lot of that technology to work. Mm-hmm. Now, was the audience, you know, when you talk about build it and they were come, were you talking about the providers? Providers. Right. Yes. Because yeah. I think that there is a there is a body of thought that if you build the the public service, and assume that people will come because you have it. That actually won't be the case. But for if you're if your target is the provider, you basically then want to provide to create a platform and say, here, come take advantage of that. I, I can see where the the philosophy would uh, would make sense. So now, so so what was the reality? You said that you you did or did not get a lot of providers that wanted to jump on this thing. We actually had zero providers at that time in okay. uh, 2002. Now. In talking to the large telcos, um, they did attend meetings and they did come to the network design and the overview and heard what we were doing. But in the end, um, and a couple that I had talked to offline, the core of this is having a middleman and not owning the customer 
it was a new business model to them that they were not ready to actually take on. Mm. So when you take a look at a, a cable uh, system that's running coax directly to the house or a telephone company running lines directly, they have ownership of that customer. It's theirs. Stick a municipality in the middle of it that's running the line and the service providers at the front end were maintained in line for them. It's reaching, well, now the value of their system has just gone down. They don't have ownership of that customer. Mm -hmm. So that that thinking actually stopped a lot of providers from doing it. Okay. Now, uh, with that said, a company, a uh, small telco, Dinian uh, Communications, came to us and said, you know what, you're 26 miles away from us. We're not sure about this model because we've never done this before. Mm -hmm. And we are very concerned about a middleman into this. But we'll fiber to your location and do dial tone for you. So that brought dial tone service across our platform then. Mm. And they're, in essence, leasing the line from us. Now, on the television side, we had no takers. Internet side, we had no takers. And we opted to build our own and take on. So we hired an engineering firm that was experienced in both those in order to get that off the ground for us. Mm -hmm. So it was basically then um, deciding to do the service because no one else would. Except for the small. Now, when that smaller provider came, did they at least, I don't know, say, well, if this goes well, we may do more? Or was it pretty much, we're just going to do the dial-up and you probably shouldn't expect anything else from us? They are primarily doing the telco side of it, mm -hmm. and, and that's what they were focused on doing. Mm -hmm. um, we talked to, about doing VoIP-type services, and that, but they had a different footprint that they were actually operating in, and by fibering to us, they crossed other areas. So mm -hmm. they stayed in their home plant, in their home area, but then dropped into our location to provide the service. Okay. Now, when you when you started to do your own, was there opposition? Or did yes. that come later? No. <laughs> no. But it, <laughs> now, let me make sure, it, we got, will, make, yeah. make sure I got this right now. So basically, you, you, you build a network and you say, look, here are these customers, here are these opportunities, and anybody that wants to come and play, this is open for you. And then everybody says no. There's a deafening silence. So you said, okay, well, fine. If you're not going to build it, we will go ahead and build it. And then the next thing that happens is the hammer falls, and every all the big come and say, "Well, you can't do that." Oh, absolutely. And, okay. And the we've seen this song. The, oh, this is it. And, <laughs> and, and what, what what is really ironic, I, I mean, about this is, you will not hear a word until you actually invest your money and build your network and get there. <laughs> Everything's silent. Okay. Wow, <laughs> we're off the radar. Nothing's going to happen. You know, we're good here. As soon as you start talking about launch date, all of a sudden. You know, the flags are going up, the questions coming in, you've got uh, people starting to take an interest. I mean, we actually had the uh, both the FCC and the Public Utility Commission. Now, the PUC came to us and on site and wanted to see what this was all about. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? You know, how is this going to work? And we had a nice full day, um, you know, session with them going over it, and they walked away and you know, never heard a word again. The FCC looked at us and said, you know what, boy, this is you know, something new. This is sounds really good, you know. With this, uh -huh. this is going well. But um, the resistance in Pennsylvania, unfortunately, uh, became the state that uh, launched legislation to prohibit any other 
right. municipal entities to actually deploy or build networks like ours. And so that stopped. And there's 68 um, electric municipalities in PA mm-hmm. that that are prime to actually help build fiber networks within their communities so everything could be linked together. Mm-hmm. But that legislation uh, put a stop to it all. And it actually stopped our borders, too. It put a fence around us from expanding outside our doors. Okay, so it was an expansion... Uh, glass ceiling as opposed to a you got to stop doing this. It seems right, exactly. Right. So, And we had intentions on building wireless towers and being able to distribute uh, bandwidth out to other communities, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to help sister municipalities in that with brand, broadband usage, but uh, the legislation just uh, crippled us and pretty much slowed us, stopped us dead in our mm-hmm. tracks. And there's been other legislation since then to continue to keep doing it. Luckily, we were grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in 20, uh, February of 2011, legislation hit hit again in Pennsylvania, and this time there's no grandfathering clauses that's sitting in with us. That's kind of dormant, and it's, been, it's sitting right now. And um, hopefully it doesn't go much further, but um, there's still a reluctance in having a small government or entity launch services like this. It doesn't, doesn't, I don't know. I, I assume at the, 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 at the personal level, people understand that, you know, this claim that small towns have this great unfair advantage that will put the poor pitiful giants out of business is all just crap. It's all just useless it's bunk. stuff. And it's, <laughs> and it's like, don't get me started. That'll be another show. Mm-hmm. But so, how do you? Um, so it's because you're you're self-contained and and okay, so you can't expand, but at least you can continue to thrive and maintain a steady state internal. We can keep keep the lights, you know, keep those houses lit up, and right. keep the streets maintained, and we can, you know, continue to improve our services. I mean, right. our, our police services uh, and our cameras and that, and where we need to have things done. I mean, this. It's invaluable mm-hmm. at this point. Um, if we continue on with uh, enhancing our, our smart grid technology and be able to uh, manage that system better, mm-hmm. it's, it's invaluable. The, the, the funny part about, you know, when you're talking about the unfairness in, in this, and one of the things that we've learned now, and we're trying to, and I, and I recommend this to any municipality or city that's actually trying to go out and, and think about doing this, Government and business under the same roof don't mix real well. And what I mean is you've got officials that have to run a government and try and run a business at the same time. Right. And there are laws, rules, regulations that the government portion of this need to follow. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a business side of this that we need to try to follow for competitive reasons. So what happens is in order to make decisions, like when we launched – it took 60 days for us to get our our information, everything on the books in order for us to be able to launch. Well, we had to release our product, our pricing, our game plan, everything about our system mm-hmm. prior to our launch ever taking place. Mm-hmm. By the time we went to launch, our competitor was there with lower prices, a different right, product, and right. something else. So every time there is something new for us to actually put out or we want to do a um, – special event, mm-hmm. 
it has to go to the table, it has to get advertised, goes through the system, it's out in the open before we ever get there, and it's countered at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about and looking at our telecommunications pieces of this actually becoming like an operating authority mm-hmm. so that there is actually a board made up of residents that manage that side of the operation, and then government stays here and does its government operation. Uh, that was a hard lesson to learn. probably should have happened five, six years ago with us, but we're still under the same roof of you know government making the decisions from a business standpoint. So ad- it cripples advertising, it cripples promotions, mm-hmm. and uh, we can't do as much as we, we really could as if we were running as being uh, like a business. So right. that unfair advantage, we're getting killed by the unfair advantage, right. even bidding and buying products in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing. We have rules and ways that we have to go about doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we can't react right away. So now, what, what would you call that, that separate entity? An like authority, government? like a, a, a management authority. It's kind of like water authorities. Have. Oh, right, right. Okay. And then that would... Now, does it, by creating a management authority, do you create an entity that, by its, whatever it is that defines an authority, that you don't have to put all this information out first? and We can operate differently in a okay. more competitive Okay. Uh, world. Is it a hard thing to do? Uh, no, it, it's actually uh, up to the borough council mm-hmm. to actually decide to form the authority and then to uh, find its members or interview its men- members and appoint them. The negative to doing something like that is um, the authority can create debt. Right, and it can create debt outside that government managing that. Mm-hmm. So there's there has to be a, a a blend so that you can't have that authority run rampant and right. pay let's say high salaries or just spend money to create a, a large debt for the operation to mm-hmm. run. Um, so that that's one of the reasons why it just hasn't moved in that kind of direction. And I think that there, there was a city in Pennsylvania, and unfortunately the authority just kind of went rampant. Oh, and spoiled it for everybody? Spoiled it for everybody. <laughs> yeah. There's always that's, one, that's, isn't that's there? That's what happens. So, uh, and every time we talk about it, it kind of goes back to that. Well, you saw what happened back there. And right. What's going to, you know, the, the same thing could happen here. But um, it, it kind of hurts us from a, uh, a marketing perspective to be able to um, advertise, mm-hmm. uh, competitive advertising, knocks on service or something that we're doing. We can't do that in return. Right, right, right. So... It puts us at a disadvantage. We can't answer back and mm-hmm. say, no, that's not true. You know, did you know this is what's really going on? Right. Um, so it's it's just part of our world and something we've gotten used to. We've, <laughs> we're dealing with it constantly. Right. Uh, a toothache that won't go away, so you just deal. And, and the, another unfair advantage is uh, something, you know, that it, it still bothers me today, but it's the uh, stimulus mm-hmm. monies. Mm-hmm. Now, in Kutztown, we went out for taxable bond debt. Right. in order to do our system, purposely, because we wanted private entities and players on our network. And to do that, we needed we needed taxable money, taxable money to be able to build that network. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when the stimulus package, so we have not gotten any funding or mm-hmm. done anything. Everything has just been on our own through our own effort. Right. We didn't raise taxes. We don't use tax money to do it. Um, when the stimulus programs came out and, you know, the president put these programs in in order to really spearhead this broadband services and that, 
very first thing that happened was legislation came out and said you can't get that and you can't apply for that kind of, that money. That was part of what we were hoping for in order to get 30 gig to the home and right. 100 to the home. And that I mean back, backbone bandwidth and pricing um, is a tough ticket to deal with, uh-huh. and we can't raise our rates that high in order to be able to purchase that type of backbone in order to redistribute it into the town. So the stimulus money would have helped to for us to get there and, and expand our whole network. But again, another piece of legislation, you're not going to be able to touch that, and it was in 2009. Was it specifically you or just any city in the any state? Any city in the state, any uh, governing entity. So what would be the likelihood of creating a co-op or some sort of nonprofit organization and do it, just get it done? I would love it. <laughs> I mean, it's it. You know, it's a, it's a matter of rethinking again, and it's it's retooling our minds and our mindset, and and the way that business has just been done. You mm-hmm. know, for the, you know, that's past few hundred years. I mean, uh, there's too much blame, I think, on on government taking control. I mean, we've been re- we were referred to as the Republic of at one time, just the because Republic of Pittsburgh. Yeah, oh. just because of you know running. Are you kidding? But it's the people in the town right. that have decided to do this and to put their monies into it. It's not outdoor funding or you know grants coming in to do this thing. And the people who are elected are the neighbors that are making the decision and say, right. we want to progress forward. Which is sort of the absurdity of the whole thing because ultimately, in theory, we are a voting democratic republic. And so you know the community, the people, the voters, if they decide to have a team of orangutans run the network, then they vote them in of sound mind and body. Right. That's that should be the end of it. And and we should have a right to be able to make our own decisions within our own communities to say, hey, this is what we really want to do. It's not to knock out private business. Right. If if there was not a need, they wouldn't, wouldn't have it in the first out. place. Right. Right. You wouldn't have the votes. You wouldn't have the exactly. support. And you know, I laugh at when somebody or I read an article or something that talks about uh, Kutztown failing. Right. We must be doing something right because they keep writing legislation trying to stop us from going <laughs> on here. So, I don't know, it's, it's confusing to me. Oh, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. It's um, it's uh, well. So coming back to the to the nonprofit thing, right? Mm-hmm. So there are places. I'm not, I'm sure you probably have heard of some of them, like a EC Fiber up in Vermont. Mm-hmm. They created a um, uh, a nonprofit, 501C, and they. You know, all the cities in the 23 or 25 communities elect a person to be on the board, but the board, but the board person isn't part of government. So it's totally a government separate entity, and off they go. They raise money, they sell in essence investments by mm-hmm. via promissory notes, and they build the network. And in Steuben County, they have a community foundation has created the dark fiber network, and they sell businesses access to that, and the business go and find a provider to turn it on. So, so I, I mean, I bring these up to say that there are successful examples of nonprofit entities that are created by the community and that are run by the community to bring broadband into the community. And, you know, in looking at Pennsylvania, you know, I sort of wonder, well, even in other places as well, well, so what happens if there's a mass movement to create co-ops? Because that's basically... You know, number one is non-government, so you can't ever, you can never 
accuse it of being a uh, government entity because it's not. Mm -hmm. um, in some respects, it is a business. Granted, it's a 501c, but you know mm -hmm. those things are all there are tax laws that say you can do those. And then you know, and then ultimately, it either exists or it doesn't exist because the community supports it or they don't support it. And so. Exactly, and and I think you, you hit it right on the head. It's the community that's actually making and driving the ship in order to make that kind of a change. Uh, an interesting point. I mean, I uh, I need to talk a couple of solicitors here <laughs> because I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, it would be it would behoove a lot of you know locations. I mean, let's face it. People don't realize this, and and I, I have to. I laugh sometimes when I see these stickers by some of the larger providers. Mm -hmm. They'll say they've got broadband here and have it here, and a little star, right? Mm -hmm. A star covers half the state or the whole state, and they got two locations that are sitting there, and the other 150 communities have nothing. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, somebody's looking at this map and going, "Well, it's there, so let's stay away from there because it's already taken place." Mm -hmm. And in reality, there are still places that are still, you know, coming off the one-way cable movement <laughs> services wow. uh -huh. and places that, that their television services are just 80 channels, 100 channels, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're void from moving forward into this whole broadband thing. What amazes me is we're running uh, and, and we're doing 8 meg up, 8 meg down for our customers. Mm -hmm. And I'm hearing 30. And I'm hearing 50 from other communities. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where we plan to be within the next year here. Right. And the reason for it is the the activity, the number of devices and what's happening in right. the market here. Mm -hmm. and, and HD television and everything that's going across us, the requirement for that is going to be there. Um, businesses and what they're, you, they're planning on doing. Uh, we're watching the internet improve a lot of business, a lot of small business mm -hmm. and sales now. Well, the traffic on this is just escalating to the point to where it's going to be a requirement for us to be putting 30 meg right. that house for mm -hmm. 50. Xbox Live, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't Katie bar you the what, door. You know, we watch this thing and that meter flies through the ceiling up here, you know, and it stays up there and, and, and we can see, holy mm -hmm. cow, that look what's going on, Netflix, mm -hmm. streaming, mm -hmm. I mean. Um, that's the next generation of, of where all this is going. It's not going to stop. It's not going to go backwards. Right. It never goes backwards. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, I think communities, especially these electric communities, have that the perfect tool for cooperative business with a, with an entity. Mm -hmm. What I heard today was there are players that will go into a community and say, you know what, if you're willing to put some skin on the table. We'll put some skin on the table, and we'll build a network. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that opportunity when we were doing Kutztown at that true. point. Uh -huh. So I'm looking at that and going, my goodness, here, what are you asking for? You're looking for right-of-ways. You're, you're looking for the rights on, on mm -hmm. to sewer systems, to you know the neighborhood, the marketing assistance, you know, the market to, to be able to bring in. It's a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I just think that here, and um, I was talking about this morning, what we see here in the attendees for the fiber to the home, who should be here, some of the mayors and some of the council people and some ah, of the decision makers, uh -huh, uh -huh. They, should, they should be able to hear this, the story, hear the, what's happening and why and where the next generation is going. I mean, let's face it, we're, we're building these networks and what's going to be in place is for our future. Uh -huh. 
they're the ones that are going to recognize the advantage to, to doing this. Mm-hmm. And eventually that coax and box system is just not going to be able to keep up with what's required down the line. And so fiber is actually is, is the gateway to go. Um, to get it out there and deployed in these rural areas and get it out there faster, I think the cooperative efforts is the only way to actually make that happen. Um, you know, it's just a matter of getting to the table, discussing it, and, and finding a route. Mm-hmm. So, what is the receptivity level of mayors uh, to this kind of a message? Because, I mean, one, I agree with you, yes, more mayors need to hear this. Uh, but I also will go to some conferences, and there will be some uh, county uh, representative or a city representative, city council representative, and he'll be like 28 and be all gung-ho about, you know, the technology and the network. And then that person will go, but sometimes, you know, we have these other city council people, and they're like 70 years old. Mm-hmm. And they can't even begin to understand the, the concept, you know. And it goes, my problem is I, I can't convince those folks. Is it possible that if we were to get those people to an event, to events like this, would they change their mind? I mean, is it you know? Can they see the light? Can enough of them see the light? I I I really believe they could. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that they're just kind of living in a little cocoon at this point in time and just not realizing that there's a whole different world that's out there and there's a, a necessity for that world. What's stopping them from actually doing it? And and you know, to be truthful, candid, um, if you have business. And business is supporting you in order to be able to, you know, get into office, maintain office, and, and whatever. That, there, that's power out mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. They're the power brokers for the decisions that are, you know, uh, these elected officials are making. So, it's it's difficult from their standpoint to try to go on both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, I'm really in favor of this, and I really think it would be a great thing. But you know what? I got private business over here, and that private business is saying to me, "Wow, what are you going to do next? Babysitting services, paving services, grass cutting services? You know, where are you going to stop?" The power of the absurd assumption. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so they they have to balance between both worlds, mm-hmm. and that that becomes a difficult mechanism, I think, for any elected official. Right. Um, and then you know, in in Kutztown's. Uh, Case we have six elected officials, council members, mm-hmm. three of them, and they run four-year terms. So every two years, we're looking at rotation, right, people, right, unless they maintain their office. Well, now you're getting a, a if a couple of those change, now we've got a new breed of thinking coming in. So it's like a re-education. And you right have again. to start it right. And that was one of the reasons about talking like an authority because it stays consistent and the players are there right, until right. You know, they decide to leave. So, yes, I, I, I believe that that it is difficult. And, and from a, a uh, an aid standpoint, I mean, let, let's face it, we ran into a lot of resistance from our own utility superintendents. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. You're talking about people that are in... Uh, place has been in place for 25, 30 years. Okay, now wow. we're talking about a technology mm-hmm. coming into play that's just blowing the windows off everything. And now you're asking them to like adopt this technology, and it's a tough thing to do. Right. And and I think that uh, you know if you're not into the IT and into the this whole technology concept, you're you're used to this wire, you know, landline type thing. 
dropping in something that you know we can't see, touch, and, and deal with <laughs> is, is now a whole different world to to deal with. So there was reluctance, you know, from from that end of it too. Mm-hmm. And I think that this the generation that's coming up and the generation that's actually starting to take fold on councils and that is a generation that this is a requirement for them. Mm-hmm. And they're realizing that it's a requirement for their children. Right. So I, I think we'll see that transition overall. Um, and I, I just think the word needs to, to be out. They, the, those officials just need to learn mm-hmm. or see more about and not rely on, let's say, the large incumbent guys that they're, they're coming. They'll be on right. the doorstep. Right, some, right, right. Well, some power time or something, is. you know. And in most cases, you're seeing people move because they realize it's just not going to happen. Right. And I need it for my job or my kids need it for this. Right. Or, you know, we want our, our children to have a better education platform. We want this this mm-hmm. Internet, you know, services. It's not happening, so we need to move on. Right. Now, is it possible, or, or let's talk about a slightly different dynamic. I understand the the the... The issues that a, an elected official has when the big incumbent comes in and says, you know, government shouldn't be here and yada, 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 and the whole socialism guilt trip. But if the business community, if the local business community rallied around and said, you know what, we need this as a business economic development issue, would that give the council and the mayors a little more spine and vision? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I mean, would it the take the voice to... of the people. Um, and, and the voice of, of the people, and you can see it, I mean, just in our world, 51% of the market is, is there. Mm-hmm. It's a strong voice that, hey, this thing is working. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you know, we have 1,250-some people on here. You're not going to just turn that off and say, hey, I don't think it's good for you. No. <laughs> you <know? laughs> what I think is, you know, we need to go back and just let the private guy do this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, that voice, but, but here's what happens, and, and I see this. Everything is smooth and it's great because they have it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about it. I go home, I turn my TV on, I, I have my TiVo and I have my stuff and I'm streaming. <laughs> I got my broadband and everything is good. Right. Until it's going to be taken away from you and, it, and it's becoming a reality that it's going to end, mm-hmm. that's when the voices will come back. And nobody makes noise when things are going well. Right. It's when it right. starts to go, you know, <laughs> turn the other way that they'll, they'll start to come out. So right now you kind of be you're spoiled a little bit mm-hmm. and it just it all looks good. But um, in a lot of sense, you've got to be real careful about what's happening, you know, on the, in, behind the doors and that here mm-hmm. because uh, you can, there, there can be a destructive faction. And uh, trying to down these services, or say, you know, I always, I always get this. Okay. One of the largest uh, telcos, man, they're going to be on your doorstep here in two years. Well, we waited two years. There's no sight of them at this point. Right? <laughs> so I get it again. I, I got it the other day. I, I actually, I, I got a, a, a document from somebody that attended the conference and said, "Hey, look out!" They say they're on your doorstep. <laughs> and I go back out, start looking around. There's nothing. There's nothing there. So I, I think a lot of a lot of times, and and this is what I think happens in in Harrisburg, unfortunately, I believe that a plan is put on a table and that stops everything. So it's like they, it's like when Microsoft would come to town in a big corporation, and then all of a sudden, any discussion of any other product except for Microsoft just stops. 
stops. Right. Now you've got this unlimited time for them to come in. To right? muck around and so jump around. As soon as you say you want to expand or, or move into the next generation of something, right? Oh no, they're 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 telling us they're, they're gonna doing do it. it. And here's their plan to do that. Yeah. Right. You know, and that thing and, and it's gonna be in a year here and, and a perfect example of this, I was in hearings, okay, <laughs> ten years ago. Right? Right. Okay. And I'm sitting at this hearing and, and we're we're going back and forth and there's there's this one center and he says, Well, wireless is going to be the answer. Why are you guys doing this? Because Help me. this is you know, I it, thought that wireless, was only North Carolina. No, no, <laughs> no, clearly no, no, not. No. I do believe that wireless is going to be the, the godsend of everything that's going to happen. This is ten years ago, right? Now, eventually, wireless is going to get to a point of this, but the, the fiber backhaul is always going to be there, no matter right. how you look at it. Something's got to connect to a wire. Something's got to do it. So, in that discussion, they're doing this. So, the next thing that happened is a large incumbent sits there and says, "We are building out." And we will have Pennsylvania covered within 10 years uh-huh. for broadband. Uh-huh. And okay, they want guys, subsidies. Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you later. Oh, yeah, tax breaks out of the water. Right, right. Well, it's nice because town for you to come down here. <laughs> 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 this, right? But they're saying they're going to take care of it. It's done. Well, we're, we're 10 years here. And I'm still, still sitting here and I'm looking up north and, you know, the. Uh, these these areas and that and there's not a line running anywhere near anybody. So, you know, it stopped everything. Right. And and I think that that's just a uh, a lot of what happens as soon as there's some noise or some venture or like right. you were saying, let's say there's three cities that want to band together, like the Tri Cities tried to do in mm-hmm. Indiana and mm-hmm. Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, the negative you know press and and the lookout. And it's scaring senior citizens. This is another big one. Right, 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 right. Who's who's voting? Senior citizens aren't coming out in the core voters, right? Scare them that mm-hmm. all of a sudden taxes are going to go in, and all of a sudden your the cost of your home is going to go through the roof. You're not going to be able to afford to run these networks and that. And so they put the fear of God in them. And you know the, these people sit back, and and again they're looking at it and saying, what do we really need it for? Are, you know, is it really going to be an impact to us or mm-hmm. make a change in our life? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that uh, I, I'm just a firm believer that I think cooperative efforts is the way to go and actually get this broadband in the rural areas and get it uh, you know, in play faster. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm amazed at when I take a look at what they're doing in Netherlands, Belgium, and, and these other countries and, and how fast they're deploying Compared to the U.S., I mean, it just uh, it, it blows my mind that the creativity in what they're doing. Um, we should be doing much better than what we are right now. Right now, is uh, now this is kind of embarrassing because I'm actually from Philadelphia. Okay, and <laughs> well, you went through the wireless street. <laughs> they went through. And I was in California, but yes, they did go through. But that was my first book. I mean, that's how I got okay. here. Was okay. writing about Philadelphia's, um, you know, effort to get broadband, of which you know I made the Verizon thing somewhat. Uh, uh, a sidebar, as, as it were, because I was more focused on how they did their planning. But you know, but but over the course of time, I've given you know lots of ink to the uh, to these issues, and you know, it has always amazed me how um, you know the, the the predictability of the attack, the the verbiage of the attack. It's always the same stuff, and yet. You seem not you, you, but the the you know community seem to have 
the same set of dynamics that gets in their way. There's either uh, older or less progressive council people who start to quake at the idea of, you know, competing against the government. Um, and in the same way, it's sort of at the mayoral level, right? And then, they, they, then you have the general population that kind of sees, oh, all these things fail, you know? I mean, I would contend that... Um, you know, it's time to if, if you've got 65 communities in Pennsylvania where the mindset is such that people understand that what is existing currently doesn't work, that if someone walks in and says, hey, tell you what, we can do we can do a community foundation because if the same, you know, 500 people that want broadband, better broadband are willing to pay for what Kutztown has, right? Well, they're going to be the same 500 people that if someone forms a cooperative or forms a nonprofit will still be there to say, hey, you know, we'll, you know, and that'll make the business case and, and, and all the rest of it. In other words, take the, take the, the weak need, non-understanding segment off the table. The same way that the big companies say, okay, we'll build that, and all of a sudden all of the power structure goes, oh, well, we're not going to talk about anything else, then say, look, an, an alternative entity comes and says, "We'll build that," and you know, and shift the discussion. I, I, you're right, and I think that um, unfortunately, I believe the Tri Cities actually tried to do that. Is that Pittsburgh and a couple of? No, that that was actually Indiana, Illinois, and um, I can't think of the other one right now. But they that was like seven years ago. Oh, okay. They yeah, tried yeah. to to create a centralized hub for distribution of. Of broadband, television, and the works, mm -hmm. and it was—I uh, believe—they uh, were competing with Comcast at that point in time. So there was a, just a huge, you know, uh, marketing blitz mm -hmm. on why you know this will never work, why it doesn't can't take off, um, and you know the it went to referendum, and I think two of the three voted voted it down and mm -hmm. a lot of it had to really had to do with the fear factor that was put in what would happen if the network failed you're going to be stuck with all this debt you know what is going to happen with it in reality you're building that asset it's an asset that's, that's an asset it i stays mean around. somebody is and somebody's going to come and buy that thing i mean right. they are going to, to they're going to want that asset it's not just going to hang there and be dormant right i mean it's it's a it's the future piece that can connect two cities together mm -hmm. and somebody's in the middle and it's not running, well, you know, somebody's going to take it over and do something right. like that. It's just a question of who that someone is and if they actually want to make it run. Now, by the same token, so there was a, there was a, um, one of the, the third guest yesterday said that, you know, one of them, he's also a big proponent of the co-op or non-profit because he goes, it just takes all that political crap off the table, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and somewhere along the line, someone needs it because that becomes a distraction. That becomes the anchor. That becomes the gating factor. If you make it a political issue, depending on your, you know, your state and the politics and who runs which part of the, you know, legislative branch, that's a deal killer, right? But if you take the politics off the table, and you flip it back around to say, okay, we're going to have you know a community-run organization, a nonprofit. You know, um, Peter says it's just it's the better way to go. I I, I agree with that. I, I think that 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 would 
help improve this whole overall you know, stigma of uh, government doing business. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that that would just give a whole new credence into uh, an, an opportunity and a um, you know an effort to actually be successful. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot behind that, and you know. Core is you have solicitors that are government solicitors and you know and taxpayer dollars doing battle against a private guy. You, you right. want to be really careful with that because we don't we don't want tax dollars being tied up in court systems and right. you know, frivolous right. things that in the end it's going to come out to some kind of negotiated deal or it's just going to fall off the table. But you expended a tremendous amount of money, and let's face it, the pockets of, of that the town and that city is, are just not that deep to go right. about taking right. it on. So, you know, there's a lot of this uh, avoid that kind of kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the nonprofit, you know, idea. Now, guaranteed, if I went back to Pennsylvania and went around and said, you know what, let's organize into a nonprofit organization. Let's get two or three cities or towns and municipalities get together and let's bring this to light, right? Mm-hmm. We would probably have three lawsuits <laughs> and questions hit the fan before we ever got off the table. And we would more likely have solicitors within those communities saying, you know what, guys? You know, you're you're going to be in for a long-term battle here. It could cause a lot of issues. Do you really want to take it on? So the sure factor comes back in again. Right. Um, and then it becomes an exercise in term- determining – you know who's willing and how willing to to fight those battles. I mean, you know, if I look at the country as a whole, and I look at where these kinds of issues are coming into play. See, one of the one of the I think points that gets missed in the discussion is that <clears throat> there really isn't a business case, right? None of these incumbents seem to do this in a place where there is a business case for them to serve it. And in fact, AT&T is going around the country trying to get legislation passed in states to remove their obligation to provide universal service, right? They're trying to get the laws off the book, mm-hmm. right? Why are they doing that? Because they don't want to serve those communities, right? They only – it seems to me that they only chase after municipalities that want to do this in an area that they've already turned down mm-hmm. because it's the Mongo effect, you know, like from Blazing Saddles, right? They send out Mongo, yep. and Mongo only knows one thing, which is to kill. It's like their only <laughs> way to deal with a the hint of a competitive right. threat. But, but what you see happening in some places is, well, once that community gets going, you know, it has to be a decent-sized community for the, the incumbent to engage because for some of these smaller places – it just it's you know it's, they hint at it but they're not really there right my, I, you know my and my point being that as as the folks in New Hampshire or not Vermont said EC Fiber when you get pat, when you take the battle point off the table which is basically the government running it and you say a bunch of community people are going to do it on their own then the incumbent looks over and goes. Well, just how much misery do I want to go through mm-hmm. because how much of a threat are they going to really be? In other words, it becomes a more rational thought. Or as another person pointed out, they only they only make a big deal because they don't want to have a hundred other cities all of a sudden want to do the same thing. The virus effect. The virus I mean, effect. That's exactly what, what right. we, you know, it, it comes into. And, and you hear that in a conversation. 
Well, if this one gets off the ground and it starts going, this is going to be like a virus. Right. And once that starts spreading, our networks, and, and here's the core of it, I lose that city of 2,000 or I lose that little town of 1,000. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to battle with this. They're just a pebble anyway. But what you're talking about is a value of maybe $5,500, $8,500 per home off the value of their overall system. So if they want to sell that little town, that thing may be worth $1.2 million. It's gone mm. if somebody else is sitting in the middle of 50% of the market right, right, right. in there. So, so all of a sudden, that combination of, wow, you know what? Here's this co-op that's trying to form. And the Midwest is great with the co-op kind right. of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, I'm impressed with what they do. I mean, they, it's great. It's a great model of everything. Why it's not adopted over to our eastern side? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. But... But if you look at it, they, you know, even purchasing in that, too, I mean, it's, it's just a great way of actually mm-hmm. bringing all your resources together. But, you know, in the end, that little that little deal of, boy, this thing could spread. And if it does, <laughs> it is going to cause us all kinds right. you know, of, of problems. Now, on, against a, a large telco kind of a person, they might say, you know what? There are, that is too small an area. We don't want it anymore. Just let them go. Right. right? But if you get, you have a, let's say, a smaller operator, Mid-sized and that operator guy. has, you know, two, three, four little places, has 125,000 customers or something like mm-hmm. that, you're infringing on their territory. How dare you? And we've right. been here forever. And you know what? You're, you're putting an egg on our face by invading our area and mm-hmm. on our territory. And that's really, if they, just turned around and turned this thinking around a little bit and say, you know what, if I got those two, three, four cities to work with me to improve that infrastructure. We open business opportunities. We open business opportunities, exactly. Right. But they can't get past the Mongo. Can't get past, exactly, 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 you know. Yeah, we've got to squash somebody somewhere. You know, it's it's, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous thing. So, you know, this has been a good, you know, a good conversation about, you know, what things are happening from the small town, uh, you know, perspective in what I would consider a hostile uh, hostile climate. Do you think that... um, I don't know, inertia is on your side. What I mean by that is the inertia of moving toward bigger, better, faster bandwidth. I mean, that's the driver. Mm-hmm. And either um, uh, the, 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 and the local government is going to look and say, you know, we either get it or we lose these people, and then we disappear as who we are as a community. right? The inertia moving in that direction, is that going to at some point just tip a, tip a point and say, Boom! We're we're gonna we're gonna fight for the broadband. We're gonna find new ways to approach it. Maybe we'll get around the law, whatever the deal is. But we're at a we're at a spot. We can't defend this position anymore. We have to get this broadband stuff in here. From our perspective, just being a single and small community, I think that the way that we look at it is: is it doing what we expect it to do? Mm-hmm. And and is it is it of value to us? And now we're a model saying: yes, it does work. Yes, it mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. And boy, it could be much better. Now, you know, and looking at us and saying, yes, look at, look at, they are surviving, and they're surviving the legislation, they're surviving that the advertising, they're, they're surviving, you know, the uh, free giveaways and you know the the things that happen in competition. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that if we can continue to stay in place, and we continue to have a good story to this, that 
that model will help, and especially in Pennsylvania, release, you know, take the strings off a bit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then start that that growth. And and it, and like you said, I think that if other communities were to come and say, hey, you know what, Kutztown, we want to band with you and, and get together and we want to make a statement in Harrisburg that we really truly do need to expand your network out to help us too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it could gain momentum. On, on that part to do it. Right. The, the, the problem is is the, getting the word out mm-hmm. and and just like this, you know, the fiber to the home council and the meetings and and this and you know blog radio here, um, it falls on deaf ears after a period of time. Everybody's just kind of like moseying on, you know, <laughs> we just forget about it, you know, and then uh-huh. the next thing it, it's a hot topic all over again. And right. You know, um, I think as more and more devices are coming out, and I think as this next generation of children are coming up, and these college kids, they're demanding it. Their their world and their professional world is going to demand this type of technology. Right, exactly. And I think they're the ones that are going to be the voice that are going to actually start taking shape and saying, why are we not doing mm-hmm. this? And then they're going to be the ones that are going to be less fearful mm-hmm. of taking it on and saying, let's let's really fight this out and uh, grow this, you know, these networks and mm-hmm. do something with them. Interesting. So I, I uh, does local support remain strong? It does. It does. Um, you know, you still have, you know, a, a group and, and there, and there are groups of people that believe truly government should not be competing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I can understand the position, but we, um, Fifty-one percent is there's there's really literally no other community that's taken that kind of mm-hmm. kind of a take rate and and the Kutztown residents are just unbelievable for being there right. for that. The best part is they know where to go if they have a problem right. and they have a voice in this. We we formed a telecommunications advisory commission two years ago mm-hmm. that's just made up of residents. They drive the network. And where do we want to go next? What do we want to do? Mm-hmm. What, 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 what do we want council to take on and, mm-hmm. and improve our system mm-hmm. with? And so that voice and just their ability to be able to pick up the phone, call us, and say, hey, you know what? There's a new channel or some new things we would like to see. You've got somebody to reach out to. And so that support is is there. Um, the it, There's another part of this, okay, as government. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a police department. We have a code enforcement office, and we're trying to sell retail services, okay, to to a world where they may get upset with something at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, well, you know, I support your services, but I got this parking ticket, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the other group that's like, no, you're not putting that box on my house. Because your police department is going to be able to see everything I'm doing and, oh, and what we're into. So there are people that truly believe that, you know, but they'll go on the internet and go on cable modem and not realize that, holy cow, the whole world's seeing what you're doing. Right, they're on Facebook. You <laughs> know, they're, they're talking about how much their boss sucks on Facebook. Yeah, and, like... and, and they're worried about the viral. <laughs> you know, we, we know everything that's well, you know, it's just, it's just not there, but, um, the biggest opposition, I think, and when I look at it, is it's not so much people in town living within the community mm-hmm. and that, and businesses that you know living that live and operate in the community. It's outsiders. It, it's the outsiders and that outside don't have agitators. this kind of thing, exactly. right? And it's like, boy, and, it, and I liken it to like a, a little child, like 
if I can't have it and I can't have that good price, well, I don't want you to have that either. <laughs> so you know, you you get this kind of thing, you know, it's like, well, you know, we've got a provider in town here that should be good enough for what we're doing, but these networks, and, and in our case especially, what happens is in a in a new build or a network that comes into place, mm -hmm. that current incumbent is going to improve their service. Right. They are going to improve their system. If they want to compete into it, they are going to go gun ho and make things better within that community because now it's a true competition that they're going to have to deal with, and it forces their hand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and we found that. I mean, that's exactly what happened. I mean, the services like overnight, you know, just went from one way cable modem service and you know, uh, a standard, you know, fifty. 256k modem kind of thing, you know. All of a sudden, what well, we're doing two-way cable modem, and you know, we've got uh, 200 channels of television now, and uh, I think that that just helped balance it so much. So it's a win-win in Kutztown mm -hmm. for the 51% that we have and 49% that we don't, because price structure came down. Mm -hmm. They are getting the attention. Right. I right. mean, they are getting the attention. They're, they they've got a complaint. You know, everybody knows they're going to go over to the other the other side. So you need to stay up on them, mm -hmm. and you need you need to keep the system growing, and you need to stay on top of the technology mm -hmm. type thing. Mm -hmm. And unlike the past technology, we sat there on the telcos now for seventy five years, right, without changing anything. We don't right. need to. Right, right, right. Right, cable modem service. I'm going to not not real old in that. Okay, but. You're sitting here in, in traditional cable service for 50 years and not doing anything. Well, today's technology is changing. Yeah, I mean, every six every, months, every, something say, every 50 is days, somebody's yeah. announcing something. Something's new. coming out, and it makes it that much, you know, much better. And this mm -hmm. is the next thing that mm -hmm. that's heading out. So, um, I mean, I'm so excited about the future. I think that it's, that it's great. I think that with the fiber to home uh, council and what I heard today from providers of service, mm -hmm. especially. Mm -hmm. Knowing that there are people that are out there and businesses that are out there that are willing to go into a community and willing to build a network and, and really are just saying to you, we're not just going to come in and do it all ourselves. You need to help us with something. Mm -hmm. And whether that is, you know, open up the right-of-ways, um, the pole attachment, you know, rights, mm -hmm. um, the marketing you know, get us to the customer kind of thing. There, there's a world there that they could blend into, and and it will get that network in place. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's just important that they can just start doing that. Mm -hmm. So um, we're we're about to transition here in a minute or two. But from an economic development standpoint, um, small town. What's the population of Kutztown? About 5,500. 5,500 and so forth. What would be the two, three biggest economic development impacts that having this network has brought to the town? Um, what I what I see is I see a lot of growth in a lot of home businesses. Okay. Aha! Yes, there a lot of go. home businesses. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of Main Street businesses doing a lot of business on the web. Okay. Okay, more so. Um, I'm seeing um, other. We have a, a couple larger businesses in that too, where they've taken our service and the broadband part of that, mm -hmm. and they're doing things that they could not do before. They were doing by some other means. Right, right. So we gave them that mechanism to get there. We had a company that was a production company from California that mm -hmm. actually moved mm -hmm. one of their offices into to uh, Kutztown so that we could um, 
get them the service and continue to keep um, uh, providing a level of service for them to be able to have their home base in California. So there is a, a uh, it's very difficult when you start to say let's let's measure the economic growth and and what you, what you're doing. Mm-hmm. What you do is you take a look around your town. You take a look at um, how many homes are not vacant. Mm-hmm. How many businesses are not vacant? You know, what are the streets like? What streets like when you're driving down them? Are they bumpy? Are they smooth? You know, what mm-hmm. what is it? So, in our core and core core statement and value is money recycles within the community. Mm-hmm. It, what we are making now, we're not looking and not sitting out there in, a, in an entity to where we have shareholders per se that are going to you know looking for forty forty five percent profitability on it. We need to make enough to sustain the system, put enough money back into the general fund to help pay for our police and our code office and our streets and our parks and that. We need to be a contributor just like our electric and our water and sewer utilities are in order to, to keep our millage and, the ta- and our property taxes down. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where it's, it, it all is. Um, if I did a calculation, and it was a rough calculation on the number of customers and usage and, and what the rates are. Surrounding area, what people are getting for cable modem service, let's say bundled service and Internet, and Kutztown. And I went to a, a 10-year platform. You know, it's Kutztown and the lowering of its rates and our competitor lowering their rates and bringing things down. Mm-hmm. We're looking at about $8 million in a 10-year period. Of mm-hmm. monies that's just either recycling or it, it, it's in the home. It's mm-hmm. in the home. It's about three hundred and fifty to three hundred seventy-five dollars per house that has money to do something else mm-hmm. that they need to do, whether it's groceries, medical, or whatever. But those prices never would have come down had this other network not been put in place mm-hmm. for that. And you're not going to just see an overbuilder come into a lot of communities or towns mm-hmm. today. I mean, it's just too expensive. Great. Well, this has been uh, both informative and lively. I'm actually glad to get a little more of the insight to what's happening in the Pennsylvania political side of this discussion because I've been following it since '05, So it's been a real interesting uh, battle. And it's nice to see that you guys have survived and your service does well and your customers stay loyal. 51% take rate, that's that's golden. That is, that's pretty golden. Is. I do appreciate your time. And no worries. Meeting you and we'll, I had a we'll great get you on the show again sometime. I appreciate that. All right. Take, you take care. care. So that's been that's been a good that's been a good breakdown. I mean, I think people who have followed me know that you know I tend to be very uh, vocal. It's probably a minor statement in terms of the you know a lot of the political issues that surround uh, communities and broadband. But I think that uh, there's a lot of important benefits that these networks bring, and they've got to they've got to stay in the game. They've got to stay in the game. So. Now I want to shift a little bit. Um, I think just about everybody who, not definitely who follows me, but I mean who follows broadband, knows that uh, the Utopia Network is um, a good project that is the object of a lot of slings and arrows uh, that is just sometimes off the chart and you kind of go, so what's really the deal? So I figure, well, if you really want to know the deal, you got to bring the people involved that are, that that make that network work, and 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 ask them. Let's let's get down to the heart of the matter, unfiltered. And so I have brought on uh, the show today uh, Todd Marriott, who is the executive director of Utopia. And uh, Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here on the show. 
And let's set the record straight. You guys are doing well, and you're going to be here for a long time. But what's going on in Utah these days? <laughs> well, there's a lot, certainly a lot of press. I guess that's what you're referring to. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And and so you know, I gather because I've also talked to, I've also talked to, um, uh, you know, some of the, the the folks in different cities that are part of the Utopian network. You know, and the consensus, consensus I get is that the service is doing well. The project, the product is a good product. The project is a sound project, but you know, it's not getting favorable press because there are there are folks who don't like it. And so, you know, so so give us a sense. I mean, you were on the show before, and we've talked about you know what Utopia is up to, but what is its progress to date? Let's just start with a, you know a, a status report on where you know how many cities do you have that are part of the the the, the group? Uh, you know what's you know what kind of take rates are you guys seeing? What where where is the project these days? I think to put it in perspective, Craig, I think you look back four years ago. Um, I just had a, had a snapshot and looked at a time where Utopia was facing even more serious threats with the RUS mm-hmm. uh, having pulled back uh, funding that they shouldn't have pulled back, and they hadn't dug ditches in, in over a year. Uh, the network was uh, in jeopardy, uh, very serious jeopardy at that point. Mm-hmm. The service providers were really non-existent, and there wasn't anything occurring on the network. And if you fast-forward from that time to today, you see a very robust, redundant network that is providing extremely good service, a connectivity, um, and is growing at a, at a, at a good clip. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in Utah, it's a very conservative red state. True. Uh, a lot of people look at uh, programs with government with a lot of um, criticism anyway, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding. I think it, it goes into the Utopia Project because of that. Uh, detractors will use that uh, minutia at uh, oftentimes to to put forward probably their own agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Utah Taxpayers Association, for example, right, is an organization that is a lobbyist group, and uh, you know their their two of their top uh, clients and members are um, you know CenturyLink now, Comcast Quest, Xfinity, however they mm-hmm. want to name mm-hmm. it, and those incumbent providers put a lot of pressure on that group to come out and vocal. Um, opposition, mm-hmm. and they've done a good job at, at uh, putting out minutia that wasn't accurate. So a little over a year and a half ago, uh, the Utah Taxpayers Association did put forward um, some numbers that weren't accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were notified that such was the case. They put them forward anyway. Some citizens were upset with what was put forward, went to their representatives who saw this as an opportunity politically uh, to put forward, a, again, another uh, legislative audit. Mm-hmm. So we have been going through a legislative audit for nearly a year and a half, completed somewhere this June of this year. Mm-hmm. The audit, uh, they self-admit, dealt 85% or more with uh, issues and mistakes and so forth that had happened pre-2008. Mm-hmm. Um, yet it's been couched and espoused as being uh, the current status of Utopia. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that Utopia has its challenges. Right. It was $185 million in, in debt. When I got there, mm-hmm. um, they have struggled forward and, and are producing a business plan now that is is working. Mm-hmm. So, now, is that what we talked about when you changed the business model, or is there a different, like a an add-on to the business plan that you're like you're, you're describing? Is that, okay, the, the business plan. I remember that when um, you and I talked when I wrote my book, 
and then you were on the show, right? Well, we talked about when you got there, things were kind of a mess because of the the, the initial approach didn't turn out to be the right approach. And then you came on and, and restructured things. And that was part of the getting residents to do like a uh, a, a buy-in to, to get the network extended to their property. And that turned things around. Uh, you know, I guess revamping the wholesale model, which was, had been the original model, uh, turned things around. Um, have you been doing additional stuff or has it been the execution of that plan that you and I discussed about two years ago that's continuing to move forward and keeping things on, on track? Well, we do continue to get better mm-hmm. at executing that plan and, and providing tweaks, I guess, Craig, to it, to that uh, to that business model. It mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that uh, we're doing that is furthering some, I guess, as you put it, add-ons mm-hmm. to that business model. It's, be, it's proving very successful. Let me give you a case in point. Last year, we finally approved a $65 million plan. Mm-hmm. We we drew on that uh, to the tune of $29.5 million. Um, the debt coverage on the $29.5 million is about $2.1 million per year. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a, a late start, uh, tsunamis in Japan. Mm, right, right, right. Everything. Um, but that said, you know, the legislative audit put a big graph on the screen showing that we missed our projections on, on, on subs, mm-hmm. on subscriber counts significantly, which we did. But they, what they failed to show was that for that same period of time, 10 of the 12 months, we were ahead of our revenue projections. And in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we made our first payment on that bond from revenues generated from that uh, tranche mm-hmm. and covered the bond. Mm-hmm. And so we are now, I guess, in terms of that, eating what we kill. Mm-hmm. Our, our biggest mm-hmm. challenge to date in Utopia remains that we are still operationally um, not at break even. So mm-hmm. we're covering our debt as we take out. Uh, plus a margin, but we've got to make serious inroads now into covering our operational defi- uh, deficits. Now, is that an operational deficit moving forward, or an operational deficit created somewhere in the in the past? Well, it, it really doesn't matter. It, it, it just continues to be an operational deficit we, okay. as we grow and we make additional revenues, and, and we're we're getting bigger, faster, stronger. We still are recognizing that there's a gap that exists in terms of you know, all the debt we have to cover. And then mm-hmm. in terms of operationally, we don't make enough yet to cover both uh, our ongoing debt mm-hmm. um, plus, you know, the bite into the operations. And so that is what we're trying to do over the next two or three years is, is get to the point where we can be at a break even on operations, um, $185 million aside. Right. So, I mean, but uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a finance person, but to kind of maybe simplify um, it is the magnitude of the debt that really has like this. I mean, it's like any organization. I mean, if you took a lot of debt or you accumulated a lot of debt in, say, its early days, and we'll talk about, you know, before you guys became part of Utopia, that debt sort of just, it hangs on until you can pay it. But it always becomes a thing that I've got to make today's rent and i got to, you know, re- retire some percentage of the outstanding debt. It would be sort of like if all of a sudden if someone forgave the entire debt, then you'd be cool because you you're running a, a solid business that takes care of all of the, you know, the, the the operating expense, the opex, I guess, would be. Yeah, and 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 I wish that were even a fair depiction. I think our, our concerns we're not covering the back 185 million. 
I mean, mm-hmm. that debt was spent before I got there. What right, we're right. doing right now is as we take money and invest it, now we're cutting, covering any new debt mm-hmm. with revenues. But uh, what would be fair to say is that Utopia is, is a very large system, over mm-hmm. 2,000 miles. It covers right. the entire state from Idaho down to Las Vegas. And so because it is fairly expansive, there's a lot of cost in terms of operations. Mm-hmm. We're not to scale yet. Right. Um, and so that is that remains our number one challenge to get the scale and to cover the OPEX. Mm-hmm. And and that's what our goal number one goal and objective is over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. But you made a fairly big bond payment the other day. I remember or I guess it was the, the uh there was a photo with you guys with this big check and so that you know, they they made a pun about the like the physical size of the check, but but that was that was a significant milestone though, wasn't it? The take, yeah, it was because we covered that debt mm-hmm. from from revenues generated right. from our efforts. And we had never done that previously. Right. So, you know, that is my number one um, stipulation from the cities is I can't, uh, with additional debt, I can't make it such that they have to cover that indebtedness mm-hmm. out of uh, their either their tax revenues or mm-hmm. their franchise fees. But the upside is that, the network continues to thrive and it continues to grow. And it seems like from the from the emails and stuff that I got from different different communities within Utopia that the citizens are happy with it and they love the service. And so, you know, if if I take away, you know, all that cloud that gets created by the critics, the core fundamental network and the business of providing broadband services that people want. You guys are doing that part very well. Yeah, I think very well. I, I think the system today, the network is is robust. I think that we could be as as uh, courageous as saying we think it's one of the better networks in the nation, if not mm-hmm. in the world. We it's a completely redundant, uh, fully revised system. It's, mm-hmm. it's carrier class. So I think in terms of what it delivers, we're we're delivering gig to the home symmetrically. Mm-hmm. You know, and many of our residents are receiving. Um, rates that are better than than most wireless situations for mm-hmm. 100 meg symmetrical mm-hmm. and of course you got to love that mm-hmm. uh, so that it is going very well and once you have uh, this fiber it's just like doing drugs mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. you can't do it without people, it people do, uh, people do love it but then, that, but. no 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 I mean but it, it is basically the um, as, as the, the previous uh, uh, guest uh, Frank said you know people can't do without it, and they're not going back to whatever was there before. Yeah. I mean, you know, they got businesses to run, they've got, you know, TV habits to feed and, and all of that stuff. I mean, they're basically moving in a forward, they need more. And as with all things technology, you know, you always need more, and rare is the time that you actually downscale and stop needing you know that that extra gigabit hard drive or bandwidth or what you know whatever the case may be. Well, it's exactly analogous to electricity. Hundred mm-hmm. years ago, we've made mm-hmm. that point many times. I know right. you have, but the fact of the matter is, if you had to go back and plug your toaster in and wait for twenty three <laughs> minutes, you just the generator out back, you know, for the yeah. squirrels to run through there. And so let's, um, as a lesson, uh, sort of in business models. Uh, that I think people should be aware of, and I've written about, I think, uh, uh, once or twice along the way, what was the business model that you inherited? What was the problem with it, as in, you know, why should people not do that again? And and what did you replace it with? Because I think what you replaced it with was a very good 
was a very good reversal of fortune. Well, the reason, you know, I'm with Abraham Lincoln, I, I think that the government shouldn't do for the people what the people can do for themselves. Right. I'm also very conservative, but this that's why this is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and so nobody else is going to do it. It is very costly. When I when I got there, it had been more of an approach is since it is going to be the best thing since sliced bread, uh, we'll put it in. Everybody will just naturally flock to it. I think many networks, uh, private or otherwise, have made those same mistakes through the dot-com era. And mm, exactly. Um, you know, we, we, we think since it's the best mousetrap ever that people will naturally be inclined to sign up without even knowing how to do it. Or, mm-hmm. So I think that was the main problem is that, uh, you know, 50% of the citizenry didn't even know what utopia was. Uh, 50% who did know uh, out of that 50% of that 50% really didn't even like utopia. We didn't know why. Uh, <laughs> and so we've, we, we have taken an approach that, look, it is costly infrastructure. And so if you're going to hook into it, you need to have some blood in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, today we do have a lease model where we do allow people to lease it. It's mm-hmm. something that we put in place this spring. It's more traditional. But typically, you know, in Brigham City, for example, uh, people put liens on their homes. Mm-hmm. in order to bond and provide this infrastructure. And 31.5% of the citizens signed up the uh, first time through. Mm-hmm. 25% of those paid the money up front. And you know, $3,000 isn't the actual cost of deployment, but it does obligate one uh, to uh, capital construction costs associated with that kind of a build. And, and, and you know, when you have that kind of an asset, you're unlikely to go switching back and forth between mm-hmm. those cost providers. Not only that, Utopia being a wholesale uh, provider, uh, open access, and you know, that fosters that competition anyway, and and I think that's the true nature of it. So mm-hmm. that's what we do differently today. We build only where there's demand. Right. Now, um, in uh, the survey that I'm doing currently uh, of economic development professionals, I gave them, I think, six possible models of how they might pay for the network. You know, everything from the traditional bond model to traditional and traditional financing to, you know, you start a foundation or there is a community foundation that comes in and, you know, plays on. There's examples <laughs> of folks that do this, right? Um, and then I also included, you know, your model, which is uh, you get people to pay a lump sum for their services some X number of years out, right? It's interesting that that model is of the um, responses I've gotten back tends to be the most favored, or maybe it's the second most favored of of the people that were that were surveyed. Um, either the you know they said you know we can definitely see doing this ourselves. Or, you know, we think this has a decent shot of being successful, as opposed to no one's doing bond stuff. No one even wanted to touch that one. Um, uh, the, the community foundation one did, got panned, which I was a little surprised by, but, you know, I figured that's, you know, subject for another day. But I found it interesting that, you know, uh, people buy into the idea of what Utopia is doing. I mean, I didn't use Utopia as the example or as an example at all. I just said, you know, this is a this is a potential model, right? Um, and and I and I look at that, and there was also a um, in in Palo Alto, California, where some consultant came in and did a bunch of work and basically came to the conclusion that that model will not work, right? And so that became news fodder for a day. Actually, it was their uh, 
utility department mm -hmm. that put forward, and it was uh, really a faulty report. Right. I've, I've actually seen it, and I have issues with it. But that's, yeah, again, another story. But I guess my main point being is that in other communities, economic development professionals, people who work on, you know, building local economies for a living, said, you know, this this could work. This this whole because uh, I'm gathering that that was one of the things that was being criticized about you guys in, in this last round of, uh, of of you know news stories and whatnot. So um, now, when you guys decided to go that route, was there any else, was there anyone else that you had to to point to and say, okay, well, you know, they did this and it worked out well, or were you like one of the first? Um, community-run projects, networks, to use that model? Yeah, there were some fringe um, examples, but I think we we're, as we do a lot of times, pioneering that effort. So you were out front. You were, you were out front with this. Yeah. Um, explain that in a little more detail, because I think this is one of those models that is easy to be misinterpreted. Because the very second you say, well, people put a lien on their homes, like folks you know, they, they, they get palpitations and whatnot because it's like, oh, my God, lean, you know, because the word freaks them out. But but describe, like, how typically this would how it works with your communities. Well, I think you're right. The, the word lean is, is uh, you know, a four-letter word. <laughs> and so it, it was very difficult, as you can imagine, to message that. Now, people mm -hmm. don't have to put leans on their homes. They could have paid twenty seven fifty up front. But they could also pay $23 a month until that was paid off over a 20-year period of time. Um, if you take that payment and, and all the payment for services, you are still at the same or less than you would be to pay mm -hmm. Comcast or Quest, for example, okay. uh, for significantly more services. So I think at the end of the day, that was the equation that made sense. But what the, the, the initial thing was is a transferable lien. It's much like if you went and voluntarily put – um, a second line of credit on your home or home equity line of credit to go get cabinets in your home to mm -hmm. improve your yard, put a right. swimming pool or whatever else. Mm -hmm. uh, you're upgrading your house with, with an asset. And in this particular case, this asset's a, a fiber optic line. Um, and so when you go to sell your house, it transfers with your home like you like a, a line of credit would. Mm -hmm. Something else that would need to be satisfied. Um, and so it's a voluntary, volunty, well, kind of like a second line of credit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, we've gone, because we we did get a lot of flack after Brigham City for the word lien, we've gone to a contractual utility, right. which allows somebody to do it from a contractual standpoint with the city. Mm -hmm. But it ultimately could be uh, fairly equivalent. Mm -hmm. But you've also mentioned that the bigger telcos or cable companies use a similar kind of uh, um, process. Well, yeah, they, they, they lease it to you. When, okay. when you look at your bill and you pay your bill, part of that bill is to cover the capital expenditure that they put in mm -hmm. to, to that system. And so you're really just leasing it. Mm -hmm. It's no different other than we spell it out. Here's the cost of your capital expenditure. Right, okay. So I think if people really, if there was some way to, to truly message that, I think everybody would step forward and say, we're in. Because if that were to occur, the total net welfare of every citizen would be significantly better. People could pay as much as twenty or thirty dollars less a month mm -hmm. for their telecom on average mm -hmm. if everybody would opt in. Instead, it gets convoluted in the minutia. Right, right. And so, um, you know, we fight through that. Mm -hmm. I think that there are other models that will advance 
or further advance this idea, and that is to some of the things I'll speak tomorrow about when I when I give my presentation. But pretty much is the fact that we need we think of um, Utopia or we think of Pennsylvania or we think of Chattanooga uh, these networks as being internet uh-huh. and it's internet access. But I think that that is the same as 100 years ago when we think in terms of electricity as being the light bill. My grandma still refers to it as the uh-huh. light bill. Uh-huh. Yet today, electrical infrastructure is much more in the lights. Today, on this table alone, Craig, you and I have phones, computers, everything else. Well, that is electrical infrastructure, not just these lights. Uh-huh. I think that the infrastructure that we're putting in place today is much more than just Internet access. Uh-huh. It's peering between communities, peering uh-huh. between first responders, city SCADA systems, those kinds of things that won't even access the Internet. And in fact, those revenue streams and those applications are what is going to drive the ability to to promote, provide, and allow for ubiquity. Mm-hmm. So one of the themes that has gone through several of the interviews that I've done just in, in the t- yesterday and today has been this idea of you know broadband is often talked about and marketed as a service. It's marketed as an internet access service. However, if you change and step away from it and say, no, actually what you want to do is build an asset, when people look at it as an asset, it becomes almost magical because then people look at it very differently. They look at it as something that you are capable of doing something with, something that you're capable of building onto. You know, it's sort of like it's, it's no longer the light. If we use your example, it's no longer the light. It is the system of electricity from which a bazillion things, all powerful and good, mostly, many times, uh, flow from. But it is, and it's not just a semantic game, it's not just a marketing game, but it is really something different when it becomes an asset. See, when you when you articulate it like that, Craig, and I wish I could have articulated it like that. I might use it tomorrow. In my Go ahead. <laughs> but I think, I think that that is truly, that it, at its very essence, the battle. Uh-huh. is to educate what you've just articulated because okay. because it is not semantics. It's exactly like the, the extensions we have in our walls, the other things, you know, the electrical motors, the microwaves, the TVs, those those types of applications have driven electrical infrastructure forward uh-huh. because it was an asset. And we think in terms, 10 years ago, Internet connectivity was kind of a service where you, you received emails addressing and, and those kinds of... Today, really, the services are online. You know, uh-huh. Yahoo, Google, um, you know, ESPN.net, uh-huh. um, uh-huh. Bonage, whatever. Those services are found online. It really is just a platform. And what we'll be seeing is a lot of platforms that are not just Internet-based that become, as you said, an asset. Is What I think is missing in the puzzle if from our paradigm shift here uh-huh. is that we've got to get to the point where like-minded entities such as Utopia, Chattanooga, Lafayette, Pennsylvania – start peering with one another on a different vein than just internet uh-huh. and, and produce what we would call ENIs or Ethernet network interfaces that allow revenue sharing to occur for peering platforms that are much more cloud-based related uh, or peer-to-peer type related uh-huh. because we keep, keep waiting for this chi- chicken or egg uh, phenomenon to occur. You know, how do we get the networks in place? Well, some would say, Let's put forward the killer apps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the problem with killer apps is that even though those killer apps could do some amazing stuff, it's, they don't have a platform in which to reside because they can't reside on 
shared access that the incumbents provide today mm-hmm. because they either ratchet down the bandwidth or it's not consistent enough to deliver millisecond uh, sensory applications. So, in effect, what we need to do is provide an addressable market of a million to two million consumers to allow greedy entrepreneurs, if you will, <laughs> to market their wares over top of a broad-based platform. Mm-hmm. And the motivation for entities like ours is to do kind of a revenue-sharing Ethernet network interface uh, based system, mm-hmm. and when we treat it, then again, as you articulated, as an asset in such a way, then then we we get both the chicken and the egg occurring at one time, and mm-hmm. that's the tipping point right now that we need to get to. Because mm-hmm. I had a, I had a discussion yesterday with um, uh, Carol Wilson, who's an editor, one of the editors at Light Reading, and when I explained to her. Because she would ask me about you know different models. She asked me about the survey, and I was kind of going saying, okay, well this is you know you know these these are how these models are being perceived by economic development folks. And when I explained to her about you know the idea of getting people paid lump sum for the service, she goes, well that's kind of like building an, an, a new add-on to your house. It's not that you're buying the access; you're actually buying the infrastructure to be built to your door, so that when you come to sell that house or condo or whatever, that you can sell it for a little bit more money because the house comes with, a two, you know, the, the digital two-car garage, I mean, in, in essence. So all of a sudden now the investment isn't looked at as, you know, oh, my God, it's like $3,000. I know I have to, like, sign a, you know, a lease or a lien or whatever. It's, well, no, I'm basically upgrading my house. It would be the same as I'm modernizing the bathroom or the kitchen um, by bringing in this infrastructure. And then all of a sudden, you know, she and I go off into this whole tangent about, you know, broadband as asset once again, or in this case, broadband enhancing the asset that you own. Yeah, and I think you're right. I, I you know, again, you articulate it very well, but if we, I think that the, the tipping point comes, Craig, when we, when we start talking about this as an asset to the mm-hmm. community, if you were to be able to deploy this ubiquitously to any community, and able to provide it as an asset for both AMI, you know, automatic uh, mm-hmm. information, meter, meter information right. as 911 uh, systems, as emergency broadcast systems, as, uh, you know, helping first responders and skids. And if you're able to put that in place ubiquitously throughout a community and have it be an asset to the community, mm-hmm. then allow people to connect into it, uh, to their asset. Mm-hmm. The cost of their internet, for example, you could get 100 meg for 29 to 35 bucks a month. Then you'd be, you know, coming close to the, you know, the Korea, Sweden, and all the other places we talk about where the the service is much better for less money. But see, I just don't think, Craig, most of us really believe when we preach is this infrastructure yet because we get people out there. Well, I can, gosh, you know, my internet's fast, and if I can download Netflix, it only buffers once in a while. You know, I, I can get online YouTube. It's, it's fast enough. And what we're not understanding is that it's not just about turning on your lights. Mm-hmm. It's about a whole new quality of life opportunity, economic development, you know, the way we can protect our citizens. So much more, and we're just not seeing that. But if we wanted to take the light bill alone as an example, and we were to deploy it ubiquitously in an area, there are models that I have available to me mm-hmm. and that we have worked with at Utopia that – would show that a ubiquitously deployed system, the net welfare of every citizen is significantly better. So, for example, if I charged you $6 to $6.80 a month, 
to do your automatic metering, uh, your first responder, 911, or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Say I even charge you $10 a month. That's a lot of money for many folks, 120 right. a year. You know? <clears throat> mm-hmm. But what if I could drop your your bills for other things, you know, $20, $25 a month? Right. Your net welfare being 10 to $15 better by being all in. We just don't treat this like infrastructure yet, and when we do, we'll be successful. But is there a danger by having the discussion be, okay, well, we should treat this as um, infrastructure, makes it easier for someone to say, uh, well, Internet is only getting YouTube, so why am I spending tax dollars so some kid can serve YouTube all day? Because I mean, and what I'm thinking, what I'm saying is, that I think that you know, we a lot of people default to what is easy or what is known. So if you say, well, it's like the utility, there very well may be a lot of people who still think, like your mom or your grandma, that it's about the light bill and it's only the light. And so we talk about you know broadband as a utility. Oh, right, broadband is what I use to get to Facebook, right? Because everyone defaults to the simple thing they know. Whereas if you, which again has been kind of the recurring theme during these these interviews, if I talk about it as an asset, do I even do I do brought the discussion of broadband even more good than trying to explain it to people as a utility? So in other words, if you went to people in uh, whatever your next city is going to be that may join Utopia, and say, you know, well consider this. You know, utility like gas, electric, water. We're just adding a fourth utility. Or you said, well, we're going to sell you this asset that is going to make the value of your main asset, your home, worth more. It's going to make the 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 value of your kids' education worth more because your kids can now tap into you know study abroad programs and heaven knows where, right? In essence, you you turn your marketing campaign, if you will, into a discussion of the asset as an asset alone or an asset that improves your other assets? No, I, I think you are accurate. I think if we approach it the way you know you perceive my comments to be, I think mm-hmm. that we will fail. Um, I don't think people will see it that way, or the, nor will they see it in the right light. So I guess what I'm suggesting is, is, for, is, is beyond that even. I, right, okay. I think the cities, municipalities, governments should, should use these networks as a means to be more efficient in both uh, first responding mm-hmm. and in their utilities as SCADA. They, they should put these systems in place to do other things. Right. Now, the effect of having done that is a ubiquitous deployment that allows someone to say, and by the way, one of the applications of our asset that we put in the ground mm-hmm. is quick mm-hmm. Internet access. Right. And if you want to use that application, it's 30 bucks. Right. And 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 somebody may say, well, then what do I need to simply plug in? Mm-hmm. It's 30 bucks. We plug in like we did in our hotel today. You know, it's 12 95 <laughs> for a day. Right? If you plug in, uh, it's 30 bucks for the month. Mm-hmm. And, and have as much as you want. And, right, right. And so I think that we're approaching it again incorrectly in that we're putting it in as an asset to Internet connectivity. I, I think we change our, our whole paradigm shift. Right. And say – Communities to look at this as a, a, a way to make their cities better, more efficient, right. et cetera. And, and one of the uh, significant applications that they can sell is connectivity mm-hmm. to the World Wide Web mm-hmm. that um, helps them recoup much of the cost. And I think in addition, there will be 
other applications. Um, I think we'll, we're working right now with the University of Idaho and other telephone companies in Idaho um, to produce an extended platform that will mm-hmm. be kind of a Linux-based system that will allow anybody to write applications to what we call an extended platform off the access mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. By doing that, uh, we can work peer-to-peer with those such groups. Um, but, but you know, it would be something that you could come home and and sensory information could be water in your yard, measuring the fall of geriatrics patients, EKGs, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, could reduce the digital divide, and also marketing, um, you know, type of brokered marketing in homes. Mm -hmm. But all those applications are revenue streams to cities based off the, as you put it, Craig, the asset. Right. And I, you know, I mean, I I started my world of business as a marketing person. This is sort of, you know, kind of how I got to here. It's been a long route, but yeah. But the, the short and long of it was, you know, I started by helping people with technology projects, products, explain where they have value. Because invariably, the people who own the technology, the same way I think the people who promote, call it Internet access as a technology, if you will, get enamored with the technology. They get enamored with the speed. They get enamored with things that are technically true, but they seem to miss the fact that that's not what people are buying. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that if you look at many of the uh, political battles, you know, um, uh, Frank, the guest before, you know, has survived some tremendous political battles, and and part of it, I think, part of what puts gets them into into that position is, you know, people can't understand what exactly that we're talking about, you know, and so it's like, why are we having this? Even why are we having this political battle to discuss internet access? I mean, like, why am I going to expend political capital? to fight my state legislature later or, you know, the whole body to get easier access for, uh, for, for some kids to roam through YouTube. And, you know, whereas, and, and, I, and I also asked Frank this question. I said, well, look, if you got the business community to step up as a body and say, oh, no, this isn't about Internet access. This is about, you know, our ability to be competitive in 25 different countries. It sort of takes a lot of the, you know, the sting out of it. I think the other thing, you can tell me if this is true or not, because you come from a red state. You are conservative. Um, I see when, when it gets explained properly at the local level, broadband stops being a partisan issue. It even stops being a large business versus small. But it becomes just basically a sort of a across-the-board local issue. Right, because people see it very differently. Yeah, I think I think education and, and and this effort properly understood that there becomes a red and blue. It's all big old purple effort. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and and I see that. I think uh, democratically, uh, Republican. If you really understand what it is we're trying to put forward, it is not a. It's simply put building roads. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. just building airports and we all want a better quality of life and right. we want to be competitive. We want our communities to have economic development, all these things you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I think we're properly understood. It is not a political issue, mm-hmm. but it is politicized. Right. It is that. So let's talk about, you know, some, some advice. We're going to put you in peer counseling mode, okay. right? I'm a community. I'm looking out there. I say, well, do I want to take this challenge? And maybe for them, they may say, well, I could form a, Nonprofit. I could form a public-private partnership. So assume that they won't necessarily look at it as 
do I want to be a government-run network more that I want to be a community-run network? How do you know? Like, what are the top two things to help them get support locally? And then we can talk about the other elements of building a network from there. But let's just start with the, you know, you got this idea. How do they get support? What's the way to cross that chasm of knowledge? Well, I, I do think that there are certain core principles in life, not to get so esoteric or, or conceptual, but I mm-hmm. think there are core principles. I think the number one thing is what what is the core objective of this network? Is mm-hmm. it just is it to drive down the cost of of the monopoly or the duopoly that exists in an area? And that stranglehold is it because you just don't have anything at all, or is it because you recognize that you need this type of open infrastructure? this type of capability that's just not going to be forthcoming to stay competitive. What is it that is your objective, I think, mm-hmm. is the number one thing to look at. I think some of the cities of Utopia have made that error or in the past as, as, as that paradigm has shifted several times. Mm-hmm. Today, I think we're, we're facing some of those same questions. You know, what is it that we are? Mm-hmm. What is it that we're trying to become? Right. Are we truly infrastructure, like we say? Mm-hmm. Are we trying just to get to a break-even standpoint, like we say? I think we're trying to answer some of those same questions today. So mm-hmm. I think Communities need to understand, number one, do they have the support politically to look at it as infrastructure? And if mm-hmm. they do, mm-hmm. then there's a different approach. Right. Um, if, if they want to do it to drive the duopoly to be more competitive, then there's a different approach. Right. You know, do we right. want to, to get schools and, and um, our anchor institutions up to speed with better connectivity and, and be more competitive in our business market, then there's a different approach. And I, I think there's a number of like-minded entities throughout the United States that they should visit, talk to. I think Utopia could provide an extensive amount of knowledge on what not to do, <laughs> um, as well as some really good ideas mm-hmm. on what might be good things to do. So I think those those two suggestions, there's a lot more. Mm-hmm. I think also make sure you have a clear path of funding mm-hmm. available to you. You can't get uh, hung up on the fence right, right. in this effort. And so you, you really have to understand your modeling and, mm-hmm. and what you can really do. And you have to have the not only political will to go through that, what you're going to have to go through, but you have to have the financial ability. And there's some communities out there that I see right now that have had the political will, but not the financial capability. Mm-hmm. They get hamstrung. This is those that... Sometimes, like we did, we had some financial capabilities. Uh, we we did it wrong, and now we lost the political will in some cases. So, you know, you, you've got to have your, I guess, your ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, then step two, how do you propose that people um, assess financial models to figure out what's best for them? Well, I think it goes back to the number one question is, what's your objective? Okay, okay. If we're looking at a ubiquitous build um, in an area, then, then see, that's the other thing, Craig, is there are so many people with advice, uh, so many consultants, <laughs> so many vendors, and, and so somebody's going to be in there saying, go G-Farm, go Active Ethernet, go right, right, you know, right. use our equipment, use this equipment. And and I think you really got to get to those people like us and others who have dirt in their fingernails. And, you know, there are great private entities, uh, Donnie Smith from Jaguar mm-hmm, Communications, mm-hmm. Um, the Nulties uh, have done some things up mm-hmm. in Berlin, you know, up in Vermont. In Vermont. Right. And, and um, you know, you've got Lafayette, who's fought at Utopia, certainly a wealth of what not to do and to do. Mm-hmm. Um, Lafayette um, certainly has had some advantages. I mean, um, 
Chattanooga and that they're a power right. company and they've had some good subsidies. And so I think you got to do your homework. Mm-hmm. And what is your objective? And that kind of answers what the financial picture is going to be. Okay. Next question. No, or next step. How do you separate the good from the bad, the charlatans from the real, you know, knowledgeable people? Yeah, you got to get under the covers, and okay. you, you need to you need to get uh, you know come in and, and meet with us at Utopia. We'd we'd be happy mm-hmm. to open up the you know our information and things that we've done uh, that have worked, have not worked, some of the issues we've experienced. I know that many other organizations. Uh, would do the same. Uh, places like Fiber the Home are good places, although you're going to find charlatans uh, here that mm-hmm. you know are saying, look, we've got the best uh, way about it. Right. So I think you have to get with those, again, have dirt in their fingernails and, 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 and talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know, and find out what vendors, what equipment, how they did it, what were the mistakes made. And I, I wish Utopia had that advantage today. I mm-hmm. think we would do it a lot different if we could have done it as in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um Next would be the political side. Not everybody, obviously, will live, live, you know, every community is in a hostile state or a state as hostile to city ownership as, say, North Carolina and Utopia, and there's, like, a couple of others that are just, like, extremely rigid in their anti-muni network behavior. But I contend that no matter how you do this, you have to engage the political apparatus, either the city council, the mayor, maybe at some point the, the, the state legislature. How does or should a city community prepare for that engagement? I don't know if you've been in a hurricane before. <laughs> I have not, but I can imagine it's pretty pretty crazy. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I think it does depend on where you are. It it can be fierce. Uh, mm-hmm. It can be unfair. It can be um, uh, intentionally mischievous. Um, and there certainly are people with. And, and, and look, the telecom industry is extremely powerful lobby. Mm-hmm. And it's this is these are things that they don't necessarily want to see succeed. Right. Um, it's my opinion that the, that the telecom um, the incumbents could do a very great service by working with the communities to provide these kinds of infrastructures, and I think they would succeed if they did. But mm-hmm. they they choose to litigate and to lobby and to fight and to put lipstick on a pig. Right. So, you know, you better just be ready for a hurricane. Okay. When it happens, and, and you know, don't you, – you, you're poking mm-hmm. uh, a lion, a tiger right in the eye. Mm-hmm. You grab a nice tail and poke him in the eye, and you got to be prepared for what happens next. Okay. Next step along the process, you have to – Manage expectations. Some of my biggest criticisms, and in fact, why I do this survey every year of uh, economic development professionals, is that since my entry into the space in 2005, I've heard politicians, I've heard uh, policymakers at all levels of government explain this is why we want to do broadband. We want to be, make people, you know, easier for people to look for jobs, or we want to bring, you know, new convention business to our area. What I would find is a disconnect between the politicians and the policymakers and how they presented it versus those people who are actually in the trenches. And ultimately, it kind of comes down to managing the expectations of what's real and what's not, what's possible and what's not with broadband. But when you're in the trenches, how do you manage that part about how do you manage expectations so that you get people pumped up and totally supporting you, but at the same time, you don't 
uh, oversell it, which gets you into all kinds of hot water later. This is utopia is one of their big issues, and it just hasn't been historic. I think I've made this mistake uh, a couple times too. I I think we have made promises that we didn't deliver on, mm-hmm. and so I think you're wise to bring this up. I I think you do need to be realistic about your expectations, and you need to to be able to deliver on what you say or over deliver at minimum. And Utopia didn't, you know, Utopia, which was rightly pointed out by the legislature, said they could be done in three years. Mm-hmm. And here we are, ten years later. So, mm, okay, you know, I I thought there's some things we could have done. Uh, that, that didn't happen, and, and, and there are always our excuses. There's some excuses that I've had, and they're valid excuses, you uh-huh. know, they're valid reasons. Uh, such and such happened, but I think managing expectations is a huge part of it. Something I haven't done as well. I'm, I'm trying to do better now, uh-huh. um, and I, I think you're wise to point that out. You you, you got to do what you say, uh-huh. you know, and if. You, you've got to be accountable for what you do. And I think if people, if you say, look, we're going to have a thousand subscribers, you better make sure you hit a thousand subscribers. Or I think more uh, precisely, you better make the revenue numbers that you say you're going to hit. Mm-hmm. Do you do that by creating a, uh, a a position on the broadband team? Do you do it by um you know, what does the execution side of it look like in terms of, you know, is there a person whose job is managing expectations? I mean, how does it get implemented? Yeah, but the problem is that most of these efforts are entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, you're, they're True. not well established. I, I think that at some point we would do well for all of us to combine some of our efforts. I, I keep trying to, to talk to people and say, let's combine efforts. <laughs> right. Um, but I think we, we you do need to have, uh, well, in my case, I'm – I'm where the buck stops, and mm-hmm. so I have to be accountable for those that reporting and for what what occurs. But I, yeah, it it, it is a huge thing. In, in my case, there's 16 cities, 16 mayors. There's, mm-hmm. You know, I meet with uh, just even in my own uh, active cities right now. There's there's well over 60 public elected officials, uh, city management, more mm-hmm. that I have to meet, and it, that 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 is such a difficult process, mm-hmm. and especially where it is so entrepreneurial anyway. You know, you're on the bleeding edge, even if you've got all your ducks in a row. Hmm. So it, it it really is, um, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to manage those expectations like you put before is, is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a similar vein, <clears throat> when you have, or especially when you have several jurisdictions, you know, 15, 16 cities where they are, you know, they have their own interests. They have their own governments. They have, you know, a lot of their own way that they do things that they do. How do you keep those cats in the same herd and moving in the, generally the same direction? Well, so go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I think it is butterflies or cats, you know, or, and, and and sometimes I'm not sure I do it really well. I, I we we do try. Mm-hmm. I meet with most of the cities on a weekly basis. Representatives mm-hmm. from the cities, I meet with them on a monthly board meetings. I try to provide outward education, but this is such a complex and sophisticated um, effort that unless you're engaged all the time, you just don't understand it mm-hmm. as well. And so I don't know. I, I continue to look for ways to to message stronger, better, more mm-hmm. accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's a challenge for me. I've been at it now for four years. Uh, you'd think I'd learn better. Um, I still I still struggle with getting everybody under the same roof 
uh, of both in terms of their education, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what they should do, and people have their opinions, and, and they're as diverse as the people themselves. And so I don't mm-hmm. know. It, it, I, I don't know how to ask you. How would you do it? <laughs> well, I, I think that um, number one, uh, it's correct to say that no one's going to have a good flawless method of doing it because it is it is very open. I mean, it has been an open process since I've been involved, and that's been since 05. So I don't think any of that is going to change. What seems like, if I, if I kind of look at what other communities have done that are doing multiple projects, is um, <clears throat> you have to create some mechanism, some communication mechanism. I think that the, 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 the takeaway from every conversation I've ever had has been, you know, a group has to figure out a communication structure. It can be emails, newsletters, a, a, a space on the Internet, a blog. The guys I interviewed from North Carolina, Wilson, North Carolina, talked about the blog was actually the best thing they did to keep people on the same page because it was it was constantly updated, it was constantly added to, but mainly it was central and everybody could, could participate in it. And I think that, um, you know, you're really looking at doing something similar if, if you've got, you know, in, in, your, in your role. Because that doesn't necessarily re- say that you well, you're going to have this very specific structure. It just basically says you've got to commit to having a communication vehicle. Yeah, and I, I think part of the thing that convolutes a bit more for us is that we are an open access mm-hmm. system. And so we, we have 20 private companies, service providers that we have to protect the information. Mm-hmm. Truly a government entity that can be fully disclosing on a blog or out mm-hmm. there. Right. Mm-hmm. Because in effect, we also have to protect uh, competitive information. You know, I'll give you an example, Craig. We, we have right now stimulus lines going in certain places and those uh, stimulus lines as they go in, uh, the first thing the incumbents do is they say, hey, that's where Utopia is going. And so they go in with these low cutthroat uh, competitive pricing and try to take us out of the market. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of information we can't put out there. Right, 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 right. Well, this has been a very uh, interesting conversation. I think it's also a very good way to uh, to finish the day because, you know, we've talked about, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, folks who have, You've had struggles, but it's been fairly smooth sailing. You guys seem to have had a lot of uh, strong wins because of the politics of it. I mean, not really, to me, a lot of it is in management is politics, but I think it's good for people in, in communities to understand this side of the discussion, why it's so important to manage expectations and why it's so good to have uh, strong communication. So for those insights, you know, as it's, it's great, and I appreciate the fact that you're on board today. Thanks, Craig, for having us. And anybody who would be, uh, go ahead and give me a call. Excellent. And that's our show for today. We're back tomorrow. Thank you, everyone, for being in our audience today. Have a great day. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.